Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of Is It Shane Ritchie? The Adventures of a Wrestling Journeyman. My name is Carl Stewart, and I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time to listen today, whoever and wherever you are. Thank you to everyone who has recently taken the time to interact with us, and to everyone who has shared our posts on social media. Please do keep interacting with us, as it not only lets us know that you're listening, but it really does help us to improve and grow. We are now available on a number of different podcasting platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. And you can find links to all of the various places you can now find us through our page at www.comroypod.vze.com That's www.comroypod.vze.com You can also download the episodes from there, and the page does contain something of a rogues gallery of various people who've either appeared on the show or who we've mentioned in various anecdotes and stories. Please do check that page out and let us know what you think via our social media pages, which you can also find linked from there. If you enjoy this show, please do continue to like, share, retweet and mention us to others, and we will continue to add more 100% original content on each and every episode. Episode 20 sees the third part of our interview with former international referee Tony Nadette, as this time we talk about Tony's experiences of working for me in Wild Promotions, as well as many more of our shared experiences over the years, including us discussing the social side of wrestling and the drinking culture which was so interwoven with being involved in wrestling in Scotland at that time. As with some of our past episodes, our regular features, short stories and quote of the week will this time be included within the interview as they relate to stories told by myself and my guest Tony Nadette. In episode 21 we'll be talking amongst other things about Tony's excursion to work for New Wrestling Evolution in Italy in 2006 with characters such as Rikishi, Vampiro, Ultimo Dragon, and others, and there are some more great stories, not only from that trip, but also from Tony's domestic refereeing duties around that time. All of that, and much, much more, to come in episode 21. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 20 of... Is it Shane Ritchie? It's now time for part three of my interview with Tony Nadette, and we pick up the chat this time, talking about Tony first coming and working for me in Wild Promotions in 2004. Enjoy. 
you first started coming to work for me in Wild Promotions in the middle of 2004. And the first one you would have done was June 2004 at the Reed Hall in Forfa. That was pretty much when I started promoting again. I'd done one show there the previous year, but I mean, I'd not really done anything promoting-wise for a couple of years apart from that one show. What do you sort of remember about that time and also going postering and flyering in Dundee and Forfa and places like that for those shows? Yeah, I mean, those days were great. I remember, you know, that first show, and it was in June 2004, wasn't it? Um, And I remember travelling up from Rutherglen, you know, where the ring was, in the back of the van. In fact, I dare say, if you Google this, I'm sure that was Drew Galloway's 18th birthday or something like that. It was certainly his birthday, because I remember on the way back, drinking cans in the back of the van. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I remember it was great, because you'd asked me if I wanted to do it, and I was like, yeah, you know what, I'll go for it. Almost to just try and keep involved and see if there was more mileage in the refing thing, or just being involved at all. So it was really good of you to ask me to get involved. And yeah, I loved it. It's amazing to think that that's 17 years ago now. Yeah, Um, But yeah, I mean, I thought it was great. I felt more relaxed straight away, oddly. And I always did at your shows versus, say, a BCW show. Uh-huh. And I think the reason for that, well, there's more than one reason, but one of the reasons was you ran the show, so everyone kind of knew what was going on. And there was clarity, and everything was straightforward. Give or take, there's always obstacles yeah. in your way. But, <laughs> I was, was going to say, you, know, you start off with the best of intentions, but then people happen, and, you know... Exactly. It, Things just get fucked up all around you. Yeah, it's a bit like driving, isn't it? People um, always say, yeah, I'm a fine driver, just everyone else is the problem. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, just, okay, we've got a bit of clarity here, you know, and things might change, but at least you knew what the starting point was supposed to be. But also the people, it was a really good crew I felt you had, and you always typically did have. You know, I thought the people were just sound, weren't they, broadly speaking? If you think back to that first show, up from Glasgow, it would have been me, Drew, Tracy, Colin, Andy. I, I'm struggling to remember now off the top of my head who would have all been in the van. But it was certainly good times. You know, the people were all brand new. And that helps in any job or hobby or whatever you'd get up to. It's the people that matter, isn't it? And if you're yeah. working with really rotten people, it makes a job rotten. And if you're working yeah. with really great people, it can make a shit job seem okay. So, um <laughs> The same applies to wrestling. I was going to say, thanks for that analogy. You know um... <laughs> you know what I mean. And um, <laughs> I'd be lying if I said I remember all the matches from the show. Because That's... I suppose there's that part of, well, this is me refing again. I've not done it for about, well, six months or so. And when I did it for Colin's shows, the last one would have been the bonus ball show. So yeah. maybe still a bit startled from that. Um <laughs> But, you know, I was really just wanting to, you know, I suppose make a go of it and see, well, is this an avenue to go down? So, yeah, I mean, I've got fond memories of it, but I just can't remember the ins and outs without putting the DVD on, which I probably do still have somewhere in my mum's attic or something. But I just remember it being really good. I even remember silly things. I remember going to the Tesco across the road from the Reed Hall and grabbing a sandwich and a bottle of juice. You know, I remember all these granular details. But what gets conflated for me, Carl, is just, you know, what were the matches that night versus the next night over there or a different show. But it was just an all-round awesome day, and I really was glad that I'd got involved again. 
I mean, as well as the shows themselves, wrestling, you know, does have that social aspect to it where you sort of form bonds with people. You're in this little team and that sort of brings about its own social life. In essence, you know, you get so wrapped up in this world that sometimes your normal everyday social life kind of ends up taking a back seat. What are some of your memories of, like, the people and, you know, the social life attached to doing those shows? Yeah, absolutely. I always remember if we had a wild weekend, so if you had a weekend of shows, there was always drinking involved, and that might be going out in Dundee, for example, uh-huh. or it might be being at, you know, Dave and Sharon's house uh-huh. and getting a carry-out in, but there was just so many fun times that involved just hanging out and typically having a few beers or shots or spirits and uh-huh. just having a good laugh with each other. But Dave was a lovely guy, wasn't he? You know, just a uh-huh. really, really nice guy. And his whole family were just brilliant, Sharon and the kids. And I'm sure they're... <laughs> I've not seen any of them for, you know, 14 years or something now. But I dare say they're all good people, you know, like his daughters. I mean, one of them was a baby back then. Mm-hmm. But they were just so lovely to be around. God, can you imagine, like, back then, like, what would it have been? 17, 18 years ago, and we were all sort of hanging about quite a lot, whatever it was. Can you imagine at that point in time the lockdown hits and we're all just kind of all like, you've got to stay wherever you are. <laughs> we're all in Grogan's flat. <laughs> <laughs> or Joe Harkin's caravan. Yeah. I think if I had to pick a place, it would be either Grogan's flat or Dave and Sharon's place. Yeah. Because <laughs> that would just be amazing. You wouldn't want the virus to go away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did have some great times. I mean, when it came to the actual shows and Dave first starting to appear on the shows, Dave, obviously this huge guy, I didn't want him being in like 10-minute competitive matches. You know, I wanted him to just come out and squash someone in two minutes and be this huge sort of killer, if you like. This was his introduction to all the different venues sort of thing. I just think it's brilliant having things like that, you know, that sort of a special attraction match. You shouldn't have a show that's all for the wrestling fans in the audience because, you know what, not everyone in the audience is a wrestling fan. But mm. see, when Dave walks out, that's the one, in my view, that's for the dads that have been dragged along or told by the wife to go and take the kid to the wrestling for the night uh-huh. or just the boyfriend or the girlfriend of the wrestling fan because when Dave walks out, as massive as he was, it's that, Jesus Christ, what's this that's coming out here? This uh-huh. is interesting. And for the kids, they'd have loved it as well, just like a real-life giant walking out. Would it have been brilliant for the folk that worried about Dave Meltzer's website? Definitely not. But for everyone else, practically, I think it was amazing just having that sort of special attraction match where, you know, you're bringing him out to kill someone and you're thinking, God, what would it be like if i seen him again? You know, he's just beat some mass job or what would happen if he was in the ring with Alan Grogan or Spinner McKenzie? You know, that kind of a thing. And that's when you kind of suspend your disbelief. Because even as a genuine, I'm not a wrestling fan, I'm just here with such and such. I genuinely think that was a sort of a suspend your disbelief sort of a moment where you say, God, they might know what they're about to do, but that's got to hurt when he goes on top of you. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was, I mean, as well as presenting a variety of different stuff, being important as a promoter, you know, because you don't want every match the same. It is good to put in those little bits that challenge an audience's perception of, oh, you know, this is all a show. It's good to put in them little bits that challenge that. Yeah, I think so too. And it kind of breaks up the evening as well. Too much of a muchness is just 
boring, even if you're a massive yeah, fan of something. Definitely. You know, people like just a bit of change, and I just thought it was brilliant, not just because I personally thought Dave was a great guy, but just from a fan perspective, I just thought, yeah, you want a big monster on your show. And I do recall, you've got the tapes, I'm sure, but you'll know what the sound was like when Dave walked out. See, just that instance where people seen him uh-huh. and they see people like me and John Short sort of looking a bit different to how even we look. Just all these little nuances about, oh, Christ, yeah. this is a bit different to what's just came before us. You know, how's he going to get in the ring? You know, what size is he when he gets closer to me? Oh, my God, look at this guy. Yeah. I just love stuff like that. But again, that's probably from my sort of... Uh, passion originally at least was that cartoon wwf world so i'd imagine that's associated with that line of thinking yeah that sort of larger than life thing of you know you don't want to go along and see two guys that you could see having a fight down the pub you want to go and see larger than life people with larger than life personalities i think it is a visual game i don't watch it or i didn't watch it to see all the sort of moves necessarily that was part of it but another part of the story was appearance. That was a big thing for me. Mm-hmm. I remember one time we were at Dave's and we'd had a right good drink. And I can't recall if we'd been clubbing as well. We're at the pub, some of us. Mm-hmm. But Alan Grogan and I are absolutely burst. We are hung over to hell. And I remember the deal was that we were travelling the next day to Sterling for a show on a Sunday afternoon stroke evening, and Stu Pendus was picking us up. Thankfully, since Stu was driving, he was sober as a judge. But uh, Alan and I were still really struggling. And Stu, I don't know how this started, but he started talking about the film Coming to America. And then he started quoting lines from it. But not just random funny lines from the film. He started quoting almost full scenes and then in the order of the actual film to the point where he was essentially doing the film for us from the driver's seat. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure the state of affairs was myself and Alan in the back, possibly with Jamie and Pat. And I think Jamie's partner was in the passenger seat or vice versa, but it was a full car. And Alan and I are really struggling with this. Um, We're really, really unwell with the booze and probably (laughs) alcohol poisoning. And now our heads are splitting in shoes, just doing all these American accents and Eddie Murphy impressions. And it didn't go for like a minute or two. We're now into about 15 minutes of that, or that's how it felt. And it got to the point where this either happened or Alan said it would happen, where he was going to blade himself with a can of Iron Brew. (laughs) <laughs> just to just to facilitate Stu pulling over and I know that sounds weird to say well it either happened or it didn't you must remember but there were so many wild things that happened in those days but what certainly happened was we did pull over and I remember so clearly myself and Alan stood in the hard shoulder with everyone else still being in the car and we were kind of a saying we can't really cope with this much longer <laughs> you know what do we do but in the end, we did get back in the car, and I think we might have found a way of delicately asking Stu not to keep quoting the same film. <laughs> but it was a horrible ride down to Sterling. And funnily enough, I'm sure that was the same show where Justin wasn't with us that night. He'd been doing a show for someone like Colin, so he'd oh. stayed in Glasgow area, and he'd been drinking with someone, and I can't remember who. It might have been Johnny Moss, it might have been Drew McDonald, but whoever it was, you know, Justin's feeling really hungover as well. 
So, like, the whole crew was pretty rough that day, apart from Stu, who was full of energy from his um, coming to America <laughs> spiel. But there always seemed to be a good laugh with those shows. It was a matter of course, wasn't it, to just chill out, have a drink and grab some food and uh-huh. have a laugh. That show that you're on about where Justin had been away and worked for someone else, that was the weekend of, what was it? We've got shows on the Friday and Sunday, and in the middle, on the Saturday, BCW has got a show, and there's another show happening in our broth that Joe Harkin's running. And Justin had been away with John Short at BCW, and we'd all gone to our broth to do the show for the Harkins. Mm-hmm. That's it. You start talking again about these shows, and that's another one where all these sort of memories come flooding back. Do you remember the sponsor of the show? I in can't our off the top of my head, no. It was a firm called Poi Bob. <laughs> There's this massive banner put up at the back of the hall, Poi Bob's Bakery, and the whole day we were doing Poi Bob jokes, basically. I, it's one of them things where I don't know why it was funny. You know, you get that sometimes where you just pick up on something and you don't know why it's funny. It just is on that day at that time sort of thing. All day long we're doing Pie Bob jokes. And even years later, when I'm playing something like FIFA or Tiger Woods or something where you can create a player, pretty much every single time I'm creating a player, I'm calling them Pie Bob. (laughs) What else would you call the player? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, my main memory from that show, I'm sure it was that show, didn't someone have a match that involved getting some local fish involved? (laughs) And by that I mean Smokies, is that what they called them? Yeah. And they're ended up yeah, being Smokies all over the ring canvas. <laughs> oh, I vaguely have a memory of that now, but I can't remember what the thing actually was. I don't know if it was something totally random, like Mike Musso versus Nathan Reynolds and the loser has to eat oh. the Smokies. Or... Do you know what I mean? There's something to it. <laughs> it might well have been Mike. Yeah, I remember there being a battle royal at the end. And me and Dave stood watching from the little stage at the other side of the hall, just going, please let the ring hold up till the end of this match. Please let the <laughs> ring hold up until the end. Because it was swaying and swaying, and it, yeah, it was just, oh, God, please hurry up and go home. <laughs> I remember that happening at a Sterling show. And to come full circle, it might have been that one that I was really hung over at. And the reason I remember it so clearly and being Sterling was, as the show progressed... <laughs> The ring kept moving towards one side of the fans that were at ringside. <laughs> to the point where at the start, you know, it's equal in terms of the spacing. But it got to the point where people were starting to, you know, kind of just start to put their chairs back a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember um, that. I'm sure that was one of your startling shows that happened and nothing major went wrong or bad happened. Yeah, right, I don't remember that at all. Maybe people felt it was better that I didn't like, get to know about <laughs> Well, these could be stressful times for you, Carl. Yeah. (laughs) The other thing that sticks in my mind about that show in our broth, though, is a conversation that happened as one of the wrestlers was coming round the ring. It was either on his way to have his match or on the way from having his match. And he's coming round. He's got this bright fluorescent singlet on. And this little kid at ringside goes, Why did you steal Mr. Perfect's ring attire? And the wrestler in question, I'm not going to implicate him by naming him, quick as a flash, just turned to the little kid and went, because he's dead. (laughs) 
I can probably put two and two together and work yes. out who it is, but I'm not going to name names. No. <laughs> I mean, I remember one night as well, we'd done the show in Sterling, and I'd like to think it wasn't that same show I'm talking about where I was hungover, but Spinner dropped me and Andy off in Glasgow afterwards, and he dropped us off at the bottom of Hope Street, which is just across the road from Central Station. So a fairly central spot, and we decided we were going to go for a drink, and we even asked Spinner if he wanted to go, but having the car and probably just wanting to get up the road, he said no. Yeah. So we went into this pub called the Alpen Lodge. Oh, and it was, uh, the legendary Alpen Lodge, otherwise known as? Tearjerkers. <laughs> Tearjerkers. <laughs> and it was a Sunday night, and it's about, I don't know, nine o'clock. And it was really bleak, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it was exceptionally bleak. A proper old man's pub, as I would put it. Uh-huh. Or at least that's what it was like that night. But I think there might have been a karaoke on. I just remember some old boy singing. Whether it was a formal karaoke or he just decided to sing, I don't know now. <laughs> but <laughs> I just remember trying not to make too much eye contact with Andy. Because <laughs> that would have set me off. But what happened was we had a fine night in tearjerkers and we would return there at different points with different people. Uh-huh. But we went into a club just a couple of doors down called Buffalo Joe's, I think. And it was actually quite busy, even though it was a Sunday night, there was a fair amount of people in. And Buffalo Joe's was one of these places that tried to be a bit different, so they had dancers and stuff. For the avoidance of doubt, it wasn't a strip club. <laughs> but, um, you know, they had, like, podiums and, you know, they paid people to just jump up and dance at certain points and stuff. And I think so there was guys as well. How close to Blythswood Square was this? <laughs> it's certainly walking distance. But, uh, <laughs> but I remember so clearly at some point all these girls jump up in the bar to start dancing. And we were sort of a stood in the queue to get more drinks. And it was, you know, quite busy. And quick as a flash, Andy walks up and he peeps his head through the legs of one of the girls that stood dancing <laughs> and goes, can I have four bodies and coke and four shots of some buka? <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And it's the type of thing that, you know, you would see in a comedy show as a skit. <laughs> And I'm laughing. This is so funny because I know the person involved and I can picture it. You know, I can picture him doing that. I think the best bit is like one of the barmen or women (laughs) served him straight away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, top marks for trying, mate. There you go. (laughs) Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. Well, yeah, I mean, there was loads of funny stories like that from that time. <laughs> and we'll probably think of more if we keep talking, I'd imagine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that whole sort of social side of it was pretty much what made it, wasn't it? And I remember you, Alan, Andy, and whoever else, you know, sort of dipped in and out at various times. When we used to go off and do these shows for other promotions sort of arranging to meet up in the pub beforehand or sometimes impromptu on the day you would say i'm here at this fucking show it's so fucking depressing come along to the pub like meet me at the pub and that would sort of be my sanity bubble on some of them shows you know where i could just sort of go and hang out with my mates and just actually enjoy being there <laughs> absolutely i mean there was just so much <laughs> times of going to pubs and stuff wasn't there really I and mean, i remember one night in dundee and it's myself 
Drew, Grogan and probably Andy. Drew and I somehow found a bar in this nightclub where there was no one around apart from the barman. And we said, are you actually open? Yep. So ordered two Jack Daniels and Coke for Drew, two vodkas and Coke for me. And Drew's drinking his Jack and Coke as I'm paying the guy. The guy gives the change. And then the other one orders, and this went on for about 45 minutes of just me and Drew stood at a bar. (laughs) People texting and calling saying, where are you? I was ignoring it because we found this limitless bar. We're having to pay for the drinks, obviously, but we're in, in principle, a busy nightclub and we've got a bar to ourselves. (laughs) And no word of a lie, this went on for about 45 minutes. And then we were kind of a rumble by just some random folk that also seen us at the bar and thought, oh, we'll join this. But after 45 minutes of two vodkas and coke (laughs) while Drew's ordering (laughs) and then a brief break while I'm ordering, it took its toll. And I remember we went and joined the rest of you on the main sort of a dance floor area. And I remember being told, but not being aware at the time, that there had been a fight around us and possibly people trying to throw punches at me and Drew. But we were totally oblivious to it because we were too busy jumping around to Living in a Prayer by Bon Jovi (laughs) and Summer of 69. And apparently it was like a comedy show because any time we'd do a movement or gesture, a fist would go flying over our heads (laughs) where our head had just been (laughs) totally oblivious and totally pissed. Not a clue what was going on around us. Oh, the one I thought you were going to tell, actually, was the Jacob Street one. Well, (laughs) I don't think that was that night, but I remember what you're talking about. What happened was, I think Drew kind of got disconnected from the rest of us, and everyone else is now back at base, being Alan's flat at the time. Uh And at some point in time, someone like Graham, who hadn't been out at all, I don't think he drank at all at that time, perhaps, I don't really remember, but... He certainly was saying, oh, where's Drew? And we were all like, don't know. But then Drew started phoning people. But when people were trying to work out where Alan's flat was, we were just telling him Jacob Street. (laughs) And as far as I'm aware, Alan didn't stay in a Jacob Street. I don't even know if Dundee has a Jacob Street. No, as far as I know, there was no Jacob Street in Dundee. (laughs) But that was certainly the advice and the instructions that were provided to Drew as he attempted to make his way back <laughs> from whatever nightclub or other establishment he'd found himself in. <laughs> but it got quite heated, and I get the impression now thinking about it, maybe him and Alan had a bit of a wind-up with each other, or maybe even a real fallout to an extent. Nothing major, but, you know, a little uh-huh. bit of awkwardness. Yeah. So there was probably a bit of spitefulness involved from Alan. Um, I can't remember the number, but it was certainly Jacob Street. (laughs) And somehow, one way or another, Drew managed to make his way back. And he was worse for wear. Probably from walking about Dundee for the last three hours or whatever it was, (laughs) looking for Jacob Street. (laughs) And maybe arguing with taxi drivers about the same location. Some very odd times. Jacob Street sticks in the mind. That's definitely one that sticks in the mind. I remember going up to Alan's for New Year the one time and I drank a little bit too much too quickly because I wasn't, you know, sort of used to the Scottish New Year's. <laughs> I was used to sort of basically getting pissed early. Then you have a stroke of midnight. Then you might stay out a little bit longer. Then, you know, that's you. 
So I basically arrived early, so to speak. We're back to Blythewood Square again. But, um, <laughs> but I wasn't as bad as Jambo. Jambo had turned up and he'd pretty much necked a bottle of Jack Daniels on his own. I mean, Jambo's maybe 16, 17 at the time. You know, this young, fresh-faced wrestling trainee. I mean, I was sort of diluting it, you know, Jack Daniels and Coke, but I, it was pretty much like nine-tenths Jack Daniels and a tiny little bit of Coke in the top. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I think he'd necked an entire bottle or something, and he's out for the count. You know, he's absolutely paralytic. And we're on our way out somewhere. I forget where we were going, but we've got to try and get Jambo. He's absolutely passed out asleep. You know, nothing is waking him. So we've had to phone his dad to come and get him. But in the meantime, like while we're waiting for his dad's nut, we've got to work out how to get him down the stairs. Because Alan lived on the top floor of a tenement building. So we've got to work out how to get Jambo down these stairs, you know, to somewhere where his dad can come and actually pick him up. So between the two of us, we start trying to ease him, firstly up off the sofa, and sort of try and walk him. Like we're literally like one either side, like walking him, like you'd walk a skeleton sort of thing. Because <laughs> nothing's happening, you know, none of his limbs are moving. He's just fast asleep. We eventually get him out to, like, past the door where there's the little hallway where you've got the two flats, one either side. Yeah. Which is just, you know, right at the top of the stairs. And... We got to that point, and I stopped, like, I, I need to, I think my shoe had come off, something like that. It was, like, sort of hanging halfway off. But because we were holding Jambo up, I couldn't sort of stop and fix it, so I'm sort of having to drag my foot with this shoe, you know, to the point where we've got him. And, right, we stopped outside Alan's front door. He stops to put the key in, uh, you know, to lock the door as we're going out, and... He hasn't realised that I'm not in a position to catch Jambo. Either he's forgotten Jambo's in this state, or he doesn't realise I'm not in a position to catch Jambo. <laughs> Jambo just slumps forward, just falls forward onto me, who's like pulling my shoe back on, and sort of rides me like a fucking toboggan down these stairs. Well, that was a nice new year for you, Carl. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was fucking brilliant. I had a, like cuts and bruises on my legs that didn't go away for about six months. Because it was all like concrete steps. There was no carpeting or anything like that. It was just, you know... A proper tenement landing, eh? Yeah. <laughs> so I sort of pulled myself up and sort of dragged Jambo up. We got him again. We're sort of walking him down the stairs this time, you know, sort of like we were before, like like, like you're walking a skeleton. Get him down to the bottom. We've got to stand with him now. Like, we can't sit him down or anything, because he just slumps <laughs> full, like... <laughs> and it's like fools and horses, where they're trying to get rid of the blow-up dolls, and they've got them... <laughs> they've got them dressed up in these women's clothes, you know, to hide the fact that they've got these blow-up dolls. <laughs> There's people coming along the street, and we're sort of going, all right, evening, <laughs> like, just holding this guy up. <laughs> um, well, that, and, there's a lesson learned there for Jambo trying to keep up with the nature boy Alan Grogan and Carl Conroy, isn't it? <laughs> to be honest, I was about as bad as he was. Although I was, you know, at least conscious. But then, eventually, Jambo's dad turns up in the car, gets out, like face like thunder, looking really, really angry, and pretty much comes over, just picks him up with one hand, like, it, like rips, well, it takes his shirt off like groundskeeper Willie in The Simpsons. <laughs> 
like rips his shirt off, like comes over, picks up Jambo by the back of his trousers, by his belt, slings him into the back of the car, and then just fucks off with him. <laughs> and then we sort of set about our merry way, you know, doing whatever we're doing, but oh, just crazy times, aren't they? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've got vague recollections of. I think I was staying at Dave's, but for whatever reason, I hadn't come out with you in Dundee that night. Can't remember why. I don't know when it was, even. But I've got vague recollections of you lot sharing a taxi to come back up to, because I think we'd all been drinking as well, so we couldn't come and get you or anything. So you missed the last bus, and you'd had to get a taxi back up to Dave's and split yeah. the cost sort of thing. And you feeling sick on the way, and it was either Andy or Alan, they're trying to get you to open the window like they're trying desperately to open the window so that you're not having to pay for a taxi to be cleaned as well. And you go and try and be sick out the window, but you don't quite make it, and you're sick all over the back of the head of one of them. I'm pretty sure that did happen. I'm pretty sure it's Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Who was also worse for where it should be noted. Um, I suppose, in fairness, it would be dangerous for me if anyone was sober at that point because I would get beaten up. But... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, we were pretty messed up that night, that's for sure. And, you know, when you think about just the logistics of that as well, I mean, how far would that have been, you know, to get from, say, Dundee City Centre to Dave's? I mean, it must have been an expensive taxi ride. But Yeah, that was certainly Andy, I remember that. Not proud of it, but I do remember <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, there was just so much stuff that happened on them weekenders. So uh... you think about how much we drank back then... And when I say we, I'm specifically thinking of people like you, me, Drew, Andy, Grogan. We consistently drank so fucking much, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember at that time in my life really sort of putting it away. And it wouldn't all be the same thing. I mean, now, if I mean, on the rare occasions I do have a drink now, I just stick to cider the whole time pretty much. Because, I mean, cider doesn't really have any effect on me other than getting me drunk, you know. Whiskey makes me angry drunk for some reason. Gin made me emotional. Like the one time I've had gin, I'm like crying at Dave's house. I'm in the toilet and I'm sat on the bog and I'm trying to go for a dump and it's just not happening. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm sat there in floods of tears because I can't go for a dump. And like Tracy, who's also there, like this is when we were supposed to have our stag and hen but we never had anything organised. You know, nothing got organised for us, so... We end up at Dave's and we're just having like a night there. And she comes in and like, what's going on? Like, what's wrong? Oh, I can't go for a shit. <laughs> I'm crying my eyes out like because I can't have a dump. And I think this is shortly after me and Grogan have had a pasta and sauce fight. So I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I'm covered in pasta and sauce all down my white top and everything. Like, I'm really glad I got you a bottle of gin and amongst your Scottish welcome pack. <laughs> yeah, I haven't touched it. <laughs> yeah, don't. Yeah. Or at least when you do, go on the video and record it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, like whiskey makes me angry, so I never have whiskey anymore. Gin makes me emotional. Brandy does something to me as well, and I can't remember. It's not. It wasn't brandy makes you randy. It's not. Like... <laughs> forget what brandy does to me but i just stick to cider now but no i did used to really put it away at that time did i tell you about that time we got free tickets to 
the WWF show in Manchester. I remember you telling me something about that. Was it you and Natty and was it Audie? No, it was me, Natty, Mike Thomas, who was driving. So he hadn't had a drop. And a guy called Mark, he got us the free tickets because he like worked in media and he got contacts with Sky and all of that. So we go up to Manchester and me and Natty, I mean, we've gone to like the Hard Rock Cafe beforehand and we're in all these various pubs and we're merry by the time we get to the show. Well, I'm merry, Natty's sober as a judge, but um, <laughs> when we get to the show at the bar, they've got some sort of special on Smirnoff Ice and Mets. And each time we go to the bar, we're coming back with about 10 bottles of Smirnoff Ice each. It's something like it was a quid a bottle or something like that. And by the time the show has finished, even Natty's on the verge of being drunk. And I'm absolutely smashed out of my head. I haven't got a clue where I am. And it's the only time that I've ever drunk so much that I genuinely couldn't remember where I lived. <laughs> and on the way back, Mike's driving us back down and we're getting closer to Birmingham. And he's going, oh, where do I go now? Where do I go now? I said, oh, just follow the signs for the airport. Just follow the signs for the airport. Because, you know, I live on the side of Birmingham where the airport is. Uh, and it's all right where do i go now i'll just follow the signs for the airport just follow the signs. i can't even look out the window i'm slumped down like head at the floor where do i go now just follow the signs for the airport just follow the signs for the airport so we end up in the airport and we're you know wherever it is in the airport and i haven't got a clue where we are i remember my address but i just can't work out how to get there from birmingham airport (laughs) i had to fuck off and get a taxi because like i'll find a taxi that would take me I think somebody came along with me, like to try and sort of pretend that I was more sober than I was. And I'm like lopping about all over the place. Like, so by the time I finally got a taxi that would take me there, all sort of standing laughing at me. <laughs> did you ever meet Mark? Five star? Never did. And it was a weird one because I was supposed to meet him quite early on when I was involved. You know, he was supposed to come up for a call, and if he did, I wasn't there that day. Right. And then, like, I think you'd booked him, and neither he couldn't get up, or maybe oh, I just finished or something like no, that. No, we'll get on to that, because that's that weekend in 2004 that he was meant to come up, but they had an accident on the way up. Wasn't that guy with a samurai sword, was it? <laughs> yeah, locked the wheel off. <laughs> Do you know Colin Mackay? <laughs> Highlander 5. <laughs> I used to go out on Christmas Eve piss-ups with him in Birmingham. Every Christmas Eve, we'd go out to this pub, The Square Peg. And I remember, oh, what was the name of that stuff? It was like alcoholic orange juice, basically. Reef? Yes, that's it, Reef. Yeah. I was going to say Hooch, but Hooch was the alcoholic lemonade. I remember drinking that when I was about 15 or something. Uh, (laughs) Sounds about right. But... Yeah, this one particular night, they were doing bottles of reef. I think it was either for a quid each or there was some sort of special on where you'd get like, if you spent a tenner, you would get 15 bottles or whatever it was. And the whole table was just full of reef. And I'm downing them one after another after another because it just went down so easily. And by the end of the night, I am so drunk that I can barely stagger to get the bus home. Like the last bus, you know, this this is the last bus, you know, before Christmas. Like there's no buses for two days or whatever. (laughs) And well, I try and stagger to this bus and like accidentally almost walk through a shop window. Um, (laughs) I walk into the shop window thinking it's a shortcut for some reason. (laughs) And then somehow make my way to the bus stop. 
get on the bus. And then the following day, Christmas Day, I'm so hungover. I don't even want to go downstairs. But then when I finally do get up and go in the bathroom, my face is bright red. The blotches from all of this stuff that I've been drinking. And it's like, I look like that guy, you know, the guy from the Falklands that's got all the bad burns. (laughs) (laughs) That's terrible, so it is. But I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I look in the mirror and I'm thinking, like, as much as I've drunk, have I quantum leaped or something? (laughs) I don't know when that would have been. Probably about that same sort of time. But some of them nights were absolutely ridiculous as well. I remember I was out with Andy once. Well, we went out a lot. But um, this one time, we're in this bar in Glasgow. It's still called Driftwood. It was like a Sunday night or something. There's hardly anyone around. In fact, it was just us and the one barmaid for most of the time we were there. And we were there for a good few hours. And they had this offer. I'm pretty sure the offer was 50 pence for a vodka and coke. Uh-huh. It might have been a pound. But if it was, that was as high as it went. You know, it was something really cheap. I think yeah. it was 50 pence. And we thought it would be a good idea to get 50 <laughs> and share them. <laughs> and, you know, the only protest from the woman was, no, I'm not giving you 50 because that means I've got more glasses to clean. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she was giving us them, like, you know, 10 at a time. <laughs> uh-huh. And I think she was just refilling the glasses, but that was her only protestation that, no, I'm not going to give myself extra work by like having all these glasses to clean. You can have 10, or maybe even 20, you know, so with 10 each, something of that nature. But aye, that was a funny night. I don't know if I've ever told us another night we're in the same place. It's had different names over the years. I think it's closed down now in general. And one night we went out in the middle of the week. It was like a Thursday night, so it's kind of a student night. And it's me, Andy, Drew, and possibly some other people. Definitely Drew, because I met him at Buchanan bus station in Glasgow. And we went to Andy's from there together in a taxi. And I also remember when we're in Andy's, Drew had been working, whatever he was doing at the time, he's been working. So he's wanting to have a shower, and he was in the shower for about a fucking hour or something, taking forever. Anyway, so we're all going this night out in Glasgow. So we're at Andy's, we get changed, and then we leave from Andy's. And then we ended up going to Destiny, and it was Shag Tag night. Shag Tag was a club night in Glasgow. And the idea was that you all had the option of getting a sticker that you'd put on your T-shirt or your dress, if you're a girl or whatever, that had a number on it that was unique to you. And if someone liked the looks of you, they went up to the place where the numbers are dispensed and they would say, I fancy number one, two, three, four, five. And then they'd put something on this kind of a notice board. So the person with a number, they could check in to see if someone liked them or not. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm pretty sure that like me, Grogan and Andy, if we had one person after us between us, I don't recall it, but like, you know, drew the number and it, <laughs> it was just constantly seeing Drew's number everywhere. <laughs> and I'm sure this pissed off Grogan or someone. I think it was Grogan. But anyway, Drew ended up, you know, pulling this girl or this girl pulled Drew, I suppose. And I can still picture her, you know, if I was good at drawing, I could draw a picture of her. And the reason I remember her so well was she was from Ireland and she had quite a thick Irish accent. And for whatever reason, me and Andy just kept doing Jerry Adams impersonations. (laughs) 
and shouting shit like, so you're gonna fucking bomb us, are you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> with accents as good as that. And this went on in the club and it continued out in the fucking street. <laughs> so now we're out in Socky Hall Street <laughs> and we're shouting about bombing things and shooting people and <laughs> all sorts. But you know what? The girl must have really fancied Drew because she stuck with it and they disappeared into the night. So <laughs> it's a lovely fairy tale ending. <laughs> but she must have been pretty pissed off with at least me and Andy. And I dare say there might have been others involved as well. <laughs> why, why have Lady Bird never published that book? <laughs> There's time yet. <laughs> oh. One thing, actually, before Drew left to go over to the States in 2007, he had a leaving night at Barry Wolfgang's pub in Glasgow. We both went along to that. What are your sort of memories from that? So the locale is a pub in the east end of Glasgow, isn't it? And Dennis uh -huh. I don't think Barry had had it that long at that point. I think it was him and his dad or his uncle. I think so, yeah. But, I mean, that pub had been there for a long time. I know of it, but I think they'd just recently taken it on. And, you know, fair play to Barry hosting it. But what was weird was there was, like, loads of people from Scottish wrestling there that knew Drew, wasn't there? Um, uh -huh. But it wasn't, like, a function room where it was just us. It was like the pub had its usual records <laughs> on a Sunday <laughs> evening, and they're probably used to having the place to themselves. And then, like, the next thing, they turned up this night, and it was just chaos. It was just loads of people that knew Drew were there. Uh -huh. Yeah, so I remember being really busy. I remember getting Drew a wee weaving card, which sounds mental, because it would just be binge straight away. You know, just a wee sort of a all the best type card. Uh -huh. But I remember I didn't get to stay until the end, but I understand there was some fundraising that went on. Oh, yes. I actually collared Barry about this like at some time later on down the line and like just said to him about this night like about Drew's leaving night being the biggest shameless profiteering drive that I'd ever ever seen anywhere before or since and it really was you know it was like there were I know you were there for some of it because one of the things I mean there were at least two different raffles you know and <laughs> There's people coming around with tickets and I'm going like, right, OK, well, you know, I'm in your pub, you know, I'll buy a raffle ticket for this, you know, I'm, fair enough. But then later on, they come around with another raffle ticket and it's like a fiver to enter or something. And the top prize is like something like a cooker or like, <laughs> or something like that. And, oh, and, I'm, and I'm going. I'm, I'm sorry, Carol, I've just remembered, wasn't one of the prizes like Drew's wrestling trousers, those purple no, things that used to wear? no. No, <laughs> that wasn't actually part of the raffle. That was done separately as an auction. <laughs> and there were various people bidding on this. And I forget who it was that was actually, it sounds a strange thing, emceeing the auction, if you like. I remember it being a woman, whether it was Colin's mum or whether it was Barry's mum. It was somebody like that. And they were you know, emceeing, if you like, this auction that was going on for basically Drew's old ring gear. There was the blue sort of very shiny pleather trousers or, you know, whatever it was. And yeah, whoever it was that was emceeing this auction for Drew's wrestling gear. And I think there was probably some other stuff thrown in there as well. I can't remember what it was now. But whoever was doing the pitch for this, you know, trying to raise money for all of this, was giving it the big one, saying that, 
oh, you know, we need to raise as much money as possible, you know, because Drew, I mean, you know, he, he hasn't even got a flight booked for like for tomorrow morning. You know, he's due to go off to the WWE the following morning. And, you know, we're meant to believe that this isn't BCW we're talking about. You know, he, <laughs> we're meant to believe that he hasn't even got his flight booked yet. You know, it's like... Yeah, bear in mind the context. Drew was known to be going to the WWE so much so that not only did he finish up his bookings, he wouldn't take more wrestling bookings. He yeah. might actually have made more money because he was turning up at shows to do his going away speeches and stuff to the yeah, various right, promotions. Yeah. And he wasn't doing that for free. So it was really surreal to be there that night when we're essentially having a whip round to get my flight to Kentucky. <laughs> like I say, there was at least two raffles. There was this auction going on of like Drew's old wrestling gear and whatever else. There was a fucking race night going on where, like, you know, you'd have people betting on, like, old races, basically, that they were showing on a video screen. And I remember, actually, like, I was with you, actually, and we have both had, like, these experiences with the gambling. I think at that time you were trying to sort of curtail your gambling because you were maybe sort of not having such a good time at that time. And I was legitimately, like, a recovering gambling addict. Like I know we had that night at the casino, but you know that was That's very tight. much a, that, that was that, that was very much a one-off. I remember this guy, you and me talking to this guy, like, and we're just trying to get to the bar, I think. And the guy that's operating this race night thing, he keeps going, "Oh, come and pick a horse!" Like, "Come and pick a horse!" I said, "No, you know, like, I don't want to." Oh, come and pick a horse! Like, come and pick a horse! No, I don't want to. You don't understand. We're both recovering gambling addicts. I know you weren't at that time, but you know. <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, just saying this to get this guy to leave us alone, basically. You know, I'm going like, I'm a recovering gambling addict. I don't want anything to do with this. And he said, I'll just pick a fucking horse. Like, just, <laughs> yeah. Very sympathetic, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, he, uh, really sympathetic kind of Glasgow guy. <laughs> but yeah, it was just absolutely ridiculous. And like I say, I did talk to Barry about it later on. And I said, you know, this is the most shameless profiteering night I've ever seen. And he pretty much just smiled, sort of shirked away, put his head down and went, yeah. (laughs) Fair play to him. You know, he didn't try and deny it, but... Yeah, fair enough. I just thought I was going to the pub for drinks. I didn't appreciate (laughs) that. I didn't appreciate that I was walking into, like, a a race night, an auction and a raffle. (laughs) Yeah, I think we were pretty much all the same. And then when we got there, it's like, oh, for fuck's sake. I mean, there was more gambling going on that night than there was in the Gala Casino in the town a few miles away. I think there probably was, yeah. But I remember actually having a conversation with Drew quite near the end, because, I mean, we didn't stay till the end either. You know, saying bye to him and everything and saying, keep in touch and all of this. And, like, him sort of thanking me, you know, saying thanks for all the, like, the early training and stuff like that. And I remember saying to him that if I'd helped him in some small way, that was great, you know, but everything that he'd sort of done up to that point and everything that he would sort of go on to achieve in the future, you know, don't let anybody take credit for that. You know, you've done it all yourself through your hard work. Don't let anybody else sort of take credit for your hard work. And I think there were various people that would try and take credit for certain things that Drew's done, but um, he may also have completely blanked that person maybe in a queue for a meet and greet maybe once, but... (laughs) I don't know. I mean, it's funny. We must have been on the same wavelength. Because separately and one-to-one, I said to Drew, very similar, I said, look, just go for this and don't worry about like what some of these people will be saying or claiming. You know, you've uh-huh. done this, you've achieved this, just go and enjoy it and don't look back. 
because he did, you know, like he done a really good job even getting there. Never mind God what he's achieved now ever since. Uh-huh. It's remarkable. I mean, I'm pretty sure he was on the telly a couple of weeks after he flew out, which was unheard of at that point in time. Yeah, I, I seem to remember that actually. And he was on either he was on one of the two big shows, wasn't he? You know, it wasn't the developmental TV. It was actually either Raw or SmackDown. He was on. Yeah, I remember it. It was SmackDown, and he had Dave Taylor as a sort of a on-screen coach, or That's you know, right. he was yeah. Dave's protege, but it was legitimately the same month that he flew out, I'm, I'm sure of it, so I'm sure this was all October 2007 this all happened. I mean, going back to you saying about him, you know, not taking any wrestling bookings after a certain point because, you know, he didn't want to run the risk of getting injured and stuff like that. I remember me and Tracy used to get a bus into Blair Gowrie, which was like the nearest sort of reasonable sized town. We had a couple of villages either side of us, but that was the nearest sort of decent sized town. And there was always this guy that used to get on who either worked for Bobby or for whoever else, you know, one of these promotions. You'd try and hide at the back of the bus so he wouldn't spot you, basically, because otherwise you'd be stuck listening to this absolute bullshit for 20 minutes, you know, about all these things he's done and all, uh, you know, just leave me alone. And I remember this, it would have been about this sort of time getting the bus into Blair Gary and he gets on and he happens to bring up Drew going over to the States. And I say, yeah, it's great for him. You know, he's done really well for himself. And the subject of him doing these appearances happened to come up and he's saying, well, you know, like because I'm such close personal friends with Drew, he actually came and did a wrestling show for us and he did me a really special rate. You know, he did me a proper mates rates kind of deal. And he then told us the amount. And I can't remember the exact amount. It was something like 500 quid plus X's. <laughs> I'm trying my best you know, to stay straight faced through all of this. And when the guy gets off the bus, like, Tracy turns to me and goes, 500 quid. I said, yeah. And she said to me, well, how much do we pay him again? And I said, 30 quid. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, this guy was such close personal friends with Drew that, yeah, he did him a special rate of only 500 quid plus expenses. And, <laughs> you know, he probably traveled by helicopter or something. like. Yeah, and he added that on and top as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but no, that leaving night was something else. I mean, when Drew was in the process of signing, all the shows that he worked on, whether it be BCW or PBW or whoever else, were putting together all these soppy, syrupy tributes, you know, where it'd be, oh, we love you, Drew. Oh, thank you for everything, Drew. And it's like, oh, we love you. Oh, don't forget us, Drew. But I'm sure that was never the premise behind it. Um, but I thought, you know, nah, that really doesn't fit in with the sort of thing we do. So I thought, ah, fuck it. Let's send him out to the ring to Letter from America by the Proclaimers. And... <laughs> I remember, I watched this the other day, funnily enough, and I remember your face in just seeing you absolutely crease at the sight of Drew coming out and also laughing at, you know, being sent out to this stupid song. Like, But, I mean, there were loads of them little musical ribs. You reminded me of one, actually, that I sort of got lost, you know, in my memory because I remember planning to do it, but I didn't remember whether I actually did it or not. And you sort of reminded me, well, yeah, you actually did do it. 
And I sort of then had vague recollections of doing it, and it was sending Colin out to his normal music. We're back to fucking Colin again. Um, <laughs> honestly. Sending Colin out to his normal music, and then as he goes out, about five seconds into him being out there, it cuts to, Hi-ho! 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 It's off to work we go! And... <laughs> Oh, I just enjoyed having fun with that stuff. It was amazing, because I remember, because Colin's theme was from the film Highlander, and it was That's called right. Gimme the Prize. Uh-huh. And it was Queen, and it was quite a rock-type song, you know, but out of nowhere, just silence, like, hi-ho, hi-ho. <laughs> and um, I remember him getting in the ring and muttering that night, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, Yes, it's time, once again, for short stories. For anyone listening for the first time, this section of the show focuses on my experiences in wrestling with the wonderfully eccentric MC of many years' experience, Mr. John Short. Again, if you are new to the show, for a more comprehensive background on who John is, please do go back and listen to episode 1 as I gave a little bit more of an overview of John in that first episode. Over the years, I've made hundreds and hundreds of trips in the car with John, across the length and breadth of Britain, and have worked on hundreds and hundreds of shows with him. He's someone I actually think the world of, even though you might not necessarily think so from listening to these stories. Some of my favourite times in wrestling have involved John in some way, So, as I've mentioned on a number of occasions before, I tell these stories not to knock the guy. Well, maybe a little bit. But more to celebrate and share his wonderful eccentricities with others. I should point out that he is a friend of both myself and my family, and has been for a long time. He also has absolutely no problem with me telling these stories. Just to make that clear. I don't go back and watch stuff very often, but when I do go back, my favourite part of watching anything back is always your reaction to something that's happened, you know, some sort of rib that's happened or some sort of incident that's happened, you know, and just my goal was always to try and crack you up laughing because if I could make you crack, then I knew it was a good one. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, I don't know how high my threshold was for that because I recall many laughs. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, you know what once I went I couldn't stop <laughs> no I know <laughs> I think the first time you absolutely lost it was the show up in Aberdeen where we first sent John Shaw out to the big break music yes and I think that music had clips of John edited on didn't it I think the first time we did it was just the big break music but then that's when I sort of edited in the afterwards that's when I edited in once the once again uh, yeah <laughs> and yeah, he, I mean the the straightforward version was enough for me, but then the remixes. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean all of this stuff was just done for his reaction as much as anything, and for the reaction of people around him. While he hasn't got a clue what's going on. Yeah, I remember like some of them birthday announcements that we used to get him to do. I mean, besides getting him to announce happy birthday to the same person at every single show, 
like, and him never twigging on that. Some of the stupid names I used to come up with, and I kept thinking, come on, John, surely you've got to get it this time. And it was like, this one particular show, there was the usual happy birthday to Joe Fordyce, which was actually Nathan's real name. But there was also um, happy 65th birthday to Harold Bishop. Um, <laughs> happy 12th birthday to Ross Doorknob. <laughs> just coming up with these stupid names. It's just, come on, John, surely, finally, eventually, you're going to tweak with one of these. Oh, he's some man, isn't he? <laughs> oh. Well, let's get into that a little bit. I mean, what sort of memories have you got of John? Uh, you know what, Carl? I um, can't remember, you know, the big stories that you've got uh-huh. and you even mentioned on this podcast. But what I've got is just always remembering every sentence the man uttered being funny. <laughs> 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 or you were waiting on him saying something that was funny. You were just uh-huh. always waiting, weren't you? And I remember actually travelling from somewhere to Aberdeen with John for your show at oh, the, yeah, Aberdeen Northern Hotel. That's it, yeah. And it was all fairly bland. And I remember genuinely thinking, is Carl just exaggerating all this stuff? <laughs> you know, <laughs> does this stuff really happen? And then we're probably about 10 miles from Aberdeen and John just started talking about fucking dildos or something like that. <laughs> you know, <it> was, <laughs> And it came in mid-sentence. And it was one of those ones where you think, did I just hear that? And then he said something along the lines of, oh yeah, one of my exes used to wear one of those as well. (laughs) It was absolutely surreal. I just remember feeling like it's finally happened. I'm finally getting into this world of John Short where (laughs) you're in another dimension. But yeah, I mean, I always remember John being a nice guy. I know we always like to have jokes, even ribs on John, but there was never anything harsh around... No, it was, it was never there. anything with any malice, you know. It was all sort of good-natured sort of thing. Yeah. And John's got a sense of humour as well, you know, so... Yeah, absolutely. Mentioned sort of briefly there, I mean, one of them sets of shows where everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And that was very much the case the weekend in early September 2004, when we did two shows, one in Forfa and one in Aberdeen. This was the first time that we'd run Aberdeen. In fact, it ended up being the only time that we ran Aberdeen. And it really was one of them weekends where everything that could go wrong did absolutely go wrong. And this actually was the start of something that came to be referred to as the curse of Stevie Knight. Steve probably doesn't even know about this. I don't think I've ever mentioned it to him. And it's nothing actually to do with Steve at all. But basically, every time I even thought about booking Stevie Knight, everything, and I mean absolutely everything, fell apart. And absolutely nothing went right at all. As I say, absolutely nothing to do with Steve at all. But this always, always happened when I did so much to even think about booking Stevie Knight. In the run up to that weekend of shows, I think the only thing that actually did go right was I used to visit a local cost cutter shop on the way home from work sometimes. And I went in this particular day and I was probably a little bit short of cash for, you know, the shows for some reason. But I went in and I needed to take money out, took 20 quid out, 
And as it came out, it gave me 40. I thought, okay, I've been given 40. I haven't asked for 40. So I put the card back in and only 20 had come off the balance, but I'd got 40 quid. I thought, okay, let's test this out. So I took out some more and it gave me double again. And in the end, if it hadn't been for the fact that I had a 300 quid limit on that card as to what I could take out each day, I would have absolutely cleaned it out. In the end, I did end up taking 300 quid out because I hadn't taken money out that day. And it gave me 600. And that was fantastic. You know, I think one of the very few times something like that's ever happened to me. But yeah, that was quite handy. You know, that gave me the money I needed for the weekend. And it never caught up with me. You know, they'd obviously just loaded the cash machine wrong or something. And maybe if they had eventually realised their error, there was nothing they could do about it. But I mean, that's where the luck ended when it came to that weekend. We were actually running these shows on the same weekend as BCW were running some shows. Stevie Knight was originally meant to work for me on these shows, but ended up doing BCW instead. His exact reason being, and this is his words, I've got a mortgage to pay, which probably says a lot about what he was getting paid by BCW. (laughs) I remember on the way up, it was me, John Short, he was driving, and Stu Odyssey. We met up in Bromsgrove, which was our usual, like, regular meeting point. Unfortunately, the only thing we had to listen to on the way up was, first of all, the history of Bristol Speedway, taped from BBC Radio Bristol, featuring John. And pretty much the entire conversation was people phoning in and saying about various places having used to have speedway tracks. And with John's obsession with speedway, Whenever he talks about Speedway, there's a thing where wherever you are, it doesn't matter where you are, you could be in any town in Great Britain and there used to be a Speedway track there. But it's never there's a Speedway track there now. It's always there used to be a Speedway track there. (laughs) And this history of Bristol Speedway from BBC Radio Bristol was pretty much just people phoning up and saying, oh, there there used to be a track at such and such, but yeah, they closed it down or... They built over it or it's been demolished or it's a supermarket now. So, I mean, that was fascinating in itself, obviously. But then for the rest of the journey up, it was pretty much the best of Acker Bilk on repeat. (laughs) And I mean, the first time you hear the opening notes of Stranger on the Shore say it's actually quite nice. But I mean, the 42nd time, you know, not so much. Because John had this weird thing where... Like I've said about this on the podcast before, actually, he said he didn't mind people bringing music along and he didn't mind what we listened to just as long as there was no heavy metal. Unfortunately, like John's definition of heavy metal was pretty much anything recorded after about 1950. The final countdown by Europe in John's mind is heavy metal. And he's clearly a fan of the Fabulous Rougeos because he didn't like heavy metal or rock and roll either. (laughs) Although if he had listened to Barry Manilow, it might have made it a little bit more bearable than just Acker Bilk for eight hours or whatever it was. (laughs) After a little bit, we stopped off at the services. We went off into the shop and John found these sandwiches, this display of sandwiches that had been reduced because either they were all going out of date that day Or some of them had already gone out of date. After we'd sort of carefully examined them, me and Oddie grabbed sort of one each for the rest of the journey and got some other bits and pieces, headed back to the car. 
And when John came back, he had a bag full of these sandwiches. There must have been about 12 or 13 of them. And it was all stuff like chicken or prawns or crab and Christ knows what else. He stuck them away in the car boot in this bag. And he was still quite happily munching away on them four or five days later when we left. They'd just been sort of fermenting away in his boot for four or five days. The other thing is on this trip, he also had a couple of two litre bottles of pop with him, which, I mean, for some reason, whenever he had a drink out of them, when we stopped, he didn't take them out of the bag. He just kept them in the plastic bag. So it just sort of made him look like a wino swigging away out of a bag. (laughs) But I think this was the start of what eventually turned into a game that we played with John. It was like a guessing game. And it basically came about when we figured out that his short-term memory was pretty atrocious. Basically, early on in the journey, we'd be just making general conversation and we'd end up talking about various wrestlers. And, you know, John would sort of give his opinions on whoever it was. And it's like, oh, yeah, nice bloke. Not much of a wrestler, though, I have to say. And then you'd wait until near the end of the journey. And this would start again, and you'd bring up the same people again that you'd brought up earlier. And he would then go, oh, yeah, I know him. Not the nicest of people. Very good worker, though. (laughs) And it just became like a guessing game on who we thought John would stay consistent on and who he would sort of just flip 180 degrees on in the space of a few hours. (laughs) And we ended up playing that on just about every journey we did with him after that. (laughs) Now... On the way, we were stopping off at this BCW show in Blantyre to catch up with a few people. Yeah, I mean, I remember something that this might not be funny to you, Carl, but I still remember it to this day, about 16 years later. I just remember John Short walking into the locker room with his, you know, Speedway magazine in his hand or whatever it was, or his autograph book. And I just remember so clearly Joe Legend turning around, seeing John, And having this sort of a reaction in his face as if to say, oh my God, this guy again. (laughs) (laughs) And I could tell, not a word was spoken by Joe. And bear in mind, Joe's a really nice guy. I've never heard him say a bad word about anyone, really. Maybe a couple, but he's a really nice guy. But you could just see the look in his face. I could visualise that he was picturing something absolutely mental that John Short has done in front of him. (laughs) And I thought, that's the legend that is John Short. I'm not hearing any words from this guy, but I can see by the look of his face that he's visualising something absolutely crazy that John has done in front of him. You've got to give credit to John for that, haven't you? And the reason John would have had a Speedway magazine or whatever with him was because he went off before the show. I mean, first of all, he turned up, look, have you, are you a fan of The Simpsons? Yeah, I was. <laughs> yeah, point taken on that. Um, <laughs> shall we say, are you a fan of the early Simpsons? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, when we met John that day, we turn up, and John is wearing the most odd combination of clothes. It's like that episode of The Simpsons. You know where Homer becomes friends with Ned Flanders? <laughs> and they're inseparable. Yes. And he goes with him to the homeless mission to do the charity work with him. And the person working there mistakes him for a tramp, basically, and sort of says, oh, you poor unfortunate man, let's get you out of them clothes. But I'm not, oh, okay. (laughs) And Homer comes back out and he's in this mismatched sort of garb of, you know, like he's got a 
whatever shirt on and it just doesn't match what he's wearing on the bottom half and he's got it John turned up for the meet that day looking like that basically he'd got this mismatching outfit on I think he had pale blue trousers on which really didn't paint him in a flattering light um, a red and black check shirt a dark brown suit jacket it's this sort of strange combination we made the journey up we got to Blantyre and John, you know, knowing his history of Speedway, says, oh, we're stopping off in Blantyre, aren't we? There's, uh, there used to be two Speedway tracks there. And bearing in mind, like, he knows that these Speedway tracks aren't there anymore. They were built over 20 years previously. We get to the leisure centre where the show is, and he goes and starts quizzing this 16-year-old receptionist about where the Speedway tracks are. You know, these speedway tracks that were built over like four years before she was born or whatever and probably has no knowledge of even ever existing. <laughs> um, yeah, he goes off in search of these speedway tracks, which he knows have been built over 20 years previously. He disappears for about two and a half hours because we were there quite early. He disappears for about two and a half hours, comes back. And we said, you know, did you find where the speedway tracks had been? And he went, oh, it turns out they've been built over. sake you know after the show we made our way further north and we ended up staying in joe harkins caravan in forfa which was permanently parked outside his house i've mentioned joe before a few times on the podcast and i do have to say that like very similar to dave and sharon and their family joe and his family were really really kind to us you know putting us up doing things for us as I say, this is either just before I met Dave and Sharon, or I'd maybe just met them but didn't know them well yet. We didn't start staying at their house until early on the following year. So yeah, we ended up staying in Joe's caravan, which we did a few times. And <laughs> there's this story actually about the one time that Justin and Adam Mansfield stayed in the caravan. For those that don't know Justin and Adam, they have this dynamic where even though they've known each other for, must be getting on for 30 years, every single time, Justin will do his absolute best to aggravate Adam, just to wind him up. And Adam will invariably, every single time, take the bait, which just makes it absolutely hilarious, especially travelling with the two of them, which I've done quite a number of times. On this particular time, Justin, Adam, there may have been other people staying in the caravan. But Adam gets to the point where he needs the toilet and Justin like says to him, oh, well, you know, um, although we're staying in the caravan here, we're not allowed into the house to use the facilities and stuff at night because, you know, we're going to disturb people. And Adam's going, well, what, what do I have to do then? Like, where can I go to the toilet? And Justin convinces him that, oh, you've got to go down to the end of this road and you like there's a place you can go there. And like Adam sort of begrudgingly trudges off down the end of the road, which is like a five to ten minute walk, goes and does his business, like comes back and Justin's watching him the whole time. And just as he's coming back up the road, Justin times it so that as Adam comes back into the garden where the caravan is, Justin is strolling out of the front door, like with a paper under his arm, like he's just been to the toilet. And... <laughs> 
I just love that so much, you know. It's the, and that's the sort of thing that they would do constantly, you know, like with Adam taking the bait every single time. <laughs> that's brilliant, isn't it? Oh, but I mean, going back to these shows, like as I mentioned before, everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong. I remember sitting in the bath at Joe's house on the day of the first show, which was in Forfa, when I got a phone call from Mark, Five Star Flash, saying that they'd had an accident on the way up. I think it was something in the end, like the wheel had actually come off Dave Mercy's car, who was driving. And obviously now they wouldn't be able to make it up. To my eternal sort of discredit, the enormity of the situation didn't quite hit me. And all I could think about was, you know, oh, fuck, I'm going to have to rearrange everything. And I didn't appreciate maybe that this had maybe been quite a serious accident. And, you know, it didn't occur to me to check that everybody was okay. He sort of snapped me back to reality and he said, we're all okay, by the way. You know, which sort of shook me out. And I said, oh, oh, God, yeah, is everyone okay? But, yeah, that's to my discredit that I didn't do that in the first place. So after I got off the phone to Mark and like finished up in the bath i had to try and figure out what to do i mean i needed replacements for the show because that's like four people in the car coming up so i ended up phoning colin i tried to sort of work out you know what could be done like what different scenarios and colin of course had a show that day as well so i managed to convince colin to spare a few guys from his show i mean the thing with bcw at that time those shows were as we've already discussed with like the bonus ball show, you know, that they weren't exactly sort of lacking in numbers. To Colin's credit, and I will give him credit for this, you know, he did say to me, well, yeah, okay, you know, I'll give you this guy and this guy. And from memory, it was Andy. My memory's a little bit shaky on whether I'd already had Vinny and the Punisher booked for the show or whether they came along on the day as well. But there was Andy, them two, and Kev, Collarboss from DOA. And to be honest, they were pretty much the guys I would have chosen out of the people who were available anyway. It was just because BCW had had a show that they weren't already on there. But yeah, to his credit, you know, he said, right, you can have these guys. But I mean, there was still the problem of how to actually get those guys up to Forfa because, I mean, they were already at Colin's show from what I remember, which was maybe in Kilmarnock. Yeah. So... Yeah, we sort of went about various different options on how to get them up there. And we talked about them getting the train up to Dundee and then, you know, I'd get them picked up from there and then I'd reimburse them for the train fares later on on the night. And then after we'd agreed this, I then got a phone call back saying that one of the guy's dads was a taxi driver at the time and he'd offered to bring them all up to Forfa to help out. And to start with, I thought this would be like a good solution. I was, you know, I was quite happy to go along with that, thinking thanks to this guy for, you know, doing something to help us out. So I accepted. Then the same guy phoned me back and then said, he says it'll probably be about 180 quid. (laughs) And like it was then I realised that rather than this being an act of kindness to help us out of a spot, the fucking guy was just looking for a taxi fare. (laughs) So... I wasn't exactly delicate with my reply, I don't think. And they got the train up in the end. <laughs> yeah, as we already mentioned, like BCW had shows on at the same time as we were running. So that was the reason that the ring I would have normally used wasn't available. 
and there were no other rings available in Scotland that weekend, which is how we ended up for the one and only set of shows as a complete last resort with Bobby Duval's ring. (laughs) I've spoken on the podcast before about Bobby basically, you know, being the absolute drizzling shits as a wrestler, drizzling shits as a promoter and the smell of drizzling shits. And this really was a last resort. And after the stress of sorting out, you know, everything that had happened with the guys that couldn't make it up now and getting the replacements sorted and getting them up to forfer, when Bobby turned up to the Reed Hall with the ring, my heart just started sinking even more. Back when I'd asked him to do the ring job originally, coincidentally enough, I was pissed at the time, which may have explained a little bit more of why I did it. I'd not fully realised what a state the ring was in when I booked it. I mean, it was so hard. You know, it felt like a boxing ring. And when he started setting up the ring and like it was being held up underneath with chairs and a fucking garden spade. (laughs) I really did start to think, what the fuck have I got myself into here? I mean, that ring was in such a state that, you know, it just fall apart at the drop of a hat. I remember the ropes breaking at least once during the show in Forfa, as Kev, like Coloboss, went flying out the ring. <laughs> I remember they also broke at least once on the show in Aberdeen. And the sight of Bobby sort of standing there trying to fix things, muttering something about like Jubilee clips and using bits from a garden hose to fix the ring. That feeling of, what the fuck, just turned into, right, Let's just get through this and then we'll never, ever speak of this again. (laughs) And as we've already mentioned a little bit, like I loved working in Forfa. It was a good crowd. You know, there was good noise, good energy, and they were proper wrestling fans, you know, and it quite often felt like there were more people there because of the atmosphere. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't actually know if I've ever asked how many people it did hold, but whatever it was, it felt like more. And you just get some venues like that. I went to see a show the other day, and it was in quite a big theatre. And I've heard if you go and see it in a different venue, about 30 miles away, you see a different show. Because it's a smaller venue, and it just feels more close together. And the way it's all set out, it just feels like the audience are more part of it. Uh-huh. Um, but to cut a long story short, that's kind of similar analogy to Forth. It just felt like a nice, perfect venue for what you were presenting, really. Yeah, I mean, there were good acoustics in the hall as well. you know. And it, I mean, I've said before, like, I always loved working in those more sort of intimate atmospheres i know you mentioned about your sort of experience being the complete opposite where you enjoyed working at the bigger halls the more sort of prestigious type venues i actually found i enjoyed the smaller more intimate halls more because it gave you the opportunity to sort of really interact with the crowd and be a bit creative at times i mean we kind of got through the four for show basically We did the Team Scotland versus Team England tag match with me and Justin against Grogan and Pendus. And, you know, that had been set up from the previous show there. But, yeah, it was, you know, a really good atmosphere. You know, I think it always was at Forfa. But, yeah, we kind of got through that show, basically. Stopped over in Joe's caravan again. And then the following day, we actually had that day off. There was originally meant to be a show on that day which we'd had to cancel. You know, it was well ahead of time it was cancelled, so we knew there wasn't going to be a job that day. So we ended up going on that evening and night out in Dundee. 
I remember us going to that all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet down by the docks in Dundee, where people were basically taking bets on who would eat the most. <laughs> and there were loads of people betting on me, but I actually lost quite a few people money that night because it was John Short that polished off the most. And he actually won by two or three clear plates. I remember us coming across a waiter at the restaurant who was basically the spitting image of Stu Odyssey. It was like a Chinese double of Stu Odyssey. It was like a tribute act of some kind. Then, after we'd finished at the restaurant, we ended up at that pub across the road doing the karaoke. And I remember the four or five of us being up on the stage and we ended up singing Bohemian Rhapsody. And it wasn't until probably about a minute into the song. I mean, I was, you know, three sheets to the wind by this point, as I think probably most of us were, um, you know, to even get up there to do karaoke in the first place. But it wasn't until about maybe a minute into the song that I realised that I'd been hogging all four parts of the song, basically, and just wasn't letting anybody else get a word in. And it was only when, like, I don't know who it was, whether it was Grogan or you or whoever, it wasn't until somebody punched me, like proper full on punched me. <laughs> I realized I'd been doing all four parts and just hogging everything. And like, you know, we ended up sort of settling into a nice routine with it. But yeah, I don't know who it was to this day because I only sort of felt the after effects. I never saw it coming. I'm not going to claim that one. <laughs> <laughs> the show in Aberdeen the following day, the ballroom where we were doing the show was actually up on the first floor of the hotel. So loading the ring in was like pretty much a pain in the ass. And I think like after taking in a couple of beans, we pretty much left Bobby and like the rest of his goons to it. I'd first seen Bobby on one of Mad Eli's videos like years previously and had shown Alan the video because it was absolutely hilarious. And his opponent on that tape has got this manageress with him called Lady Vile. And <laughs> Alan's seen this and he's like, oh, I want to meet that girl. And he's pretty much obsessing over it. And when he knows that Bobby's going to be doing the ring, he says, like, oh, can you bring Lady Vile? I really want to meet Lady Vile. And he turns up to Aberdeen and, like, Bobby goes to him, oh, you know, like, do you want to come and meet Lady Vile? And you just see, as he's walking over there, the utter disappointment. You can see his face just drop. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like the live version doesn't live up to the album version. It's like... <laughs> And this video is from 1997, and this is now 2004. And I think his exact words were something like, she looks like she's fucking melted. <laughs> oh, I love Grogan so dead. I mean, being around him at that time when he was on form, he was just hilarious, wasn't he? And I remember one night, we'd been in a pub. Well, it must have been a club, actually, because we're eating chips and stuff now on the way to the taxi. And I remember him talking about just wanting to get his face in amongst some lassie. And then he just like, throws his face into his chips and cheese and shakes his head about it. And then he throws his head up and it's all chips and cheese. <laughs> I mean, if that was Dundee, he probably would have given himself a better chance with the girl. Um... <laughs> That's true. Um, I mean, he's just such good value. I mean, another one that's funny, I just came out of my mind, was I was staying at Grogan's during one of these sort of weekends that we were having. And... I remember him and Justin went to the gym and the joke was that Justin was going to put him through his paces, but it was also real as well. Being yeah. honest, you know, we knew that Justin wasn't going to go and give him an easy time. 
but then they came back and Crokin looks absolutely gubbed and he sits down and I'm sure in my mind this happened I'm sure he picked up a bottle of whiskey opened up and just started drinking out the bottle (laughs) (laughs) he was in such a bad way after going to the gym with Justin yeah (laughs) going back to the show in Aberdeen there was no actual dressing room as such as I remember, we all got changed in a couple of the actual hotel rooms in the hotel. I mean, quite what, you know, regular sort of paying guests must have thought when they saw a load of guys strolling through the hotel corridors in like leotards and, you know, all of this stuff. <laughs> but the two shows on this particular run were amongst the worst I ever ran as a promoter. I mean, because of a variety of things, you know, everything going wrong, the lousy ring... It just wasn't conducive to having good shows, you know, with everything going on. As shit as things were, though, and this was, you know, a seriously sort of depressing time, I remember us getting a huge boost in morale when we started to get word about what had happened at BCW's show. And basically what had happened was BCW had had Steve Carino booked, who was flying in directly from Japan, where he'd worked the previous night. His flight, though, ended up getting massively delayed for at least a couple of hours, I think, which meant that the show ended up, he was in the main event, and the show was sort of running later and later and later with them waiting for him to get there. This was bad enough in itself, but whoever it was that was telling us about this then told us that Colin hadn't even sent anybody to the airport to pick him up when he did get in. So what he'd ended up doing was getting a taxi from Edinburgh Airport, a black cab as well, to take him to the hall in Kilmarnock, like 60-odd miles. He got changed into his wrestling gear in the back of the cab, went straight in to do his match when they got there. But then, such was the complete lack of organisation. No one had been arranged to take him back to the airport afterwards either, and he was then flying down to London to work for the FWA. So what he did was he got the taxi driver to wait, keep the meter running, and when he'd finished, got the taxi to either take him back to Edinburgh Airport or to one of the Glasgow airports, whichever it was, and charged the full amount to Colin, which was just unbelievable. Like, And I just remember that being a real sort of team bonding moment backstage at that show in Aberdeen as sort of the realisation came over us of no matter how shit this gets, you know, and this was the drizzling, drizzling shits. You know, we were really down in the dumps that day. No matter how bad this gets, it's never going to be as bad as that, basically. <laughs> it was amazing. And I'm pretty sure that the word that came through to us was that not only did he have his match, but after his match, he hung around to sell his 10 by 8 pictures <laughs> for his T-shirt. <laughs> well, the meter's running this taxi. <laughs> I mean, the taxi driver's the hero of the story for me, actually. <laughs> Just uh, what a fair he got. And the best uh-huh. bit is, he ends up back at where he started. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what a night he had. Yeah, it's just insane to think that there can be such a lack of organisation that that kind of thing could happen. And I just can't imagine it happening in any other form of entertainment, no matter what it is. I just can't imagine, one, the promoter not thinking of doing something proactively, and two, no one volunteering to think about, oh, 
do you want me to do this? Everyone just let it all unfold. Uh-huh. And, and fair play, you know, Carino got his money and he was in and out of Dodge in no time. And the taxi driver, he got Colin's money as well. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, it was a good night all. And, and it was, it might sound sick, but we were, I mean, it wasn't just you, you're the guy that's fronting all this. But even for us, you know, we are not having the greatest of weekends because, uh-huh. you know, we're just around this fairly gloomy couple of shows and, you know, the ring that's getting held up by a spade. And I'm glad you remembered about the spade because I remember, so I'd have let you know about that if you'd forgotten. And um... <laughs> no, that is permanently etched into my memory forever. But another one, actually, that, you know, you've mentioned it, but, you know, it's one that I remember really clearly. The first night when Columbus went through the rope, I mean, if you've got that in video, watch the video because I'm watching Kev go backwards, essentially. Uh-huh. And it was like watching Die Hard when Alan Rickman dies. You know the bit at the end when Hans Gruber is falling from the top of the skyscraper at Nakatomi Plaza. That was my moment when like, I watched Kev run into the ropes and he just went flying back. And I don't think he went through John's table. He just landed on the floor. Or did he go into the table? I remember having a conversation about this at some point with someone. Immediately before the rope breaks and Kev goes sort of flying out, maybe two or three seconds before that, John Shaw moved from where he was sitting to get up and go and do something. And if he hadn't moved at that time, basically Kev would have landed straight on top of him. Bloody hell. I forgot about that part, but yeah, you're right, because I can visualise Kev, but I just couldn't remember where John was at this point in time. Yeah, John had actually got up to go and do something, and it's literally two or three seconds before Kev comes flying out. Oh, it was terrible, and God, that ring was terrible. Bobby was terrible. Um, <laughs> I can't remember his sidekick. Was that his son or nephew or whatever? Like oh, to be honest, I've tried to block that out of my mind, you know, like PTSD, but I don't know. No, it wasn't the same guy, actually. This is going back a little bit in time, actually, maybe a month or two. I'd actually been up doing a show for Bobby somewhere in Fife. I think it was a place called Kinghorn, just outside of Kirkcaldy. And him and all of these various goons are in the ring beforehand doing what's loosely termed training. And Bobby gets the guy. I mean, this is one of the first things he learns in wrestling training. It's not how to bump, not how to lock up. It's, you know, the thing Ric Flair used to do when he draped the leg over the ropes and then go up in the air and sort of come down on it to weaken the leg kind of thing. Well, this is basically the first thing Bobby gets this guy to do. And he says, right. Right, put my leg on the ropes and jump on it. So the guy, to his credit, you know, sort of does exactly that. He drapes Bobby's leg over the bottom rope and jumps with two feet straight down on Bobby's ankle. <laughs> <laughs> and Bobby, like, when he can finally get up, you know, and can actually walk, you know, he actually just goes up and twats him and throws him out the ring. <laughs> Oh, it's brilliant. And oh, it's funny because, yeah, it was sort of a low mood that weekend. But then, like, once that news filtered through from down the road, it was that fools and horses moment when the whole <laughs> gang are together just laughing at someone else's misfortune. <laughs> and it was, I remember it instantly kind of lifted things, didn't it? You know, and I remember things after that being actually, you know, quite upbeat and quite good. And I remember actually getting everybody together after that show in a big group and, you know, just saying, you know, thank you to everyone for your hard work. Thank you for this teamwork that you've shown, you know, getting through all this shit. 
and then again it was like pretty much along the lines of and let's never speak of this again <laughs> and here we are <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i don't do myself any favors do I? <laughs> on the way back down to be honest i mean like the journey back down was fairly uneventful well you know as uneventful as a journey with john short driving can be really apart from one incident which happened when we stopped at a petrol garage somewhere i forget exactly where we were but somewhere near the borders and like on the way back there were four of us in the car on the way up it had just been me john and oddie but on the way back down justin was with us as well and like we stopped at this garage and after we'd sort of been in and had our usual sort of piss and stocked up on food and stuff we were standing outside the car getting some fresh air you know before we all had to endure the however many hours of like the smell of old minge in john's car for those that don't know justin justin is actually type 1 diabetic and injects insulin on sort of a regular basis throughout the day so he took the opportunity to do his insulin as we were stopped at this garage before we got back on the road now if you can picture this scene at around 10 p.m on a sunday night four blokes suspicious looking blokes at the best of times i'll admit that are standing around on a deserted petrol station forecourt one of them john the driver is standing there swigging or ingesting something out of a plastic bag like a wino or a glue sniffer might do. One of them, Justin, is standing injecting himself with a needle. One of them, me, has had a sudden attack of itchy bollocks, probably due to not being able to have a proper shower at the hotel before we left. So I've got my hand down my trousers, basically giving things a good old jiggle. And then the other person, Oddie, for some reason I'm still not quite sure of to this day, is just standing there, randomly flexing his biceps and doing Hulk Hogan poses. <laughs> At this point, a police car with a couple of officers in drives right past us. And because they can't take their eyes off us, probably wondering what the fuck is going on here, they just about crash into one of the petrol pumps. <laughs> <laughs> And we pretty much just made our escape very shortly after that. But, I mean, we did have a good laugh about that on the way home. <laughs> no uh, agent policing there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got back at whatever time. Christ only knows what time in the morning. Meanwhile, John's still happily munching away at these sandwiches that had like, been fermented away. I remember going back into work on the Monday morning to find that the woman that I shared an office with, Mary, had left while I was away. Just basically sort of upped and left, like, and she'd left a note saying, well, they wanted me to leave, so I've left. And, like, after this fucking mental weekend, going into work on a Monday morning to find this chaos, and this has happened, like, on the Thursday or Friday of the previous week. So, like, there's this massive backlog of work. You know, I don't get the chance to settle in, you know, nicely and have a nice, easy day. I've you know, there's things flying at me from all directions. And like this just sort of compounded everything from that weekend. And yeah, I was quite happy to get home on the Monday night. I did go and try the cash machine again on the way home, but unfortunately they fixed it by then. Yeah, so that was just one of them absolutely ridiculous sort of weekends. And, you know, we had loads of them. Yeah, and, uh, I don't know what it says about us, but we kept doing it, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, we never really learnt from our mistakes. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm, there might have been some people that turned up and said, nah, this isn't for me. But I can't remember those people. It's as if you're just drawn in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just mental from start to finish. Like, I'm pretty much the whole time in wrestling. You know, never mind these particular show weekends. Pretty much just the entire time we're involved. For the benefit of people listening, it's fair to say that you have an interest in crime and detective shows, which we would often discuss into the wee hours on the aforementioned MSN Messenger. And I remember particularly sort of ribbing you, you know, with various things from The Bill or Columbo or, you know, announcing you from Burnside in Glasgow, you know, Burnside being a big character on The Bill sort of thing. But then you sort of coming to me afterwards and saying, don't announce I'm from Burnside because I actually live there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what are the odds of that? Um, yeah. I was like, yeah, it's a bit too close for home, that. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember just getting John to say these absolutely random things, just for your reaction as much as anything else. You know, announcing that you were the owner of the world's largest collection of Columbo memorabilia and all of this. and just random facts. You know, you used to have the WCW Top 10 and you'd have these random facts about the people involved sort of thing. And yeah, referee Tony Nadette has the largest collection of Columbo memorabilia in Britain. I remember people would walk up to me and start talking to me about these things as well. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember, for example, Dave and Chaz saying, oh, have you seen this cop show? And I was like, no, if not, it's any good. And, you know, went away and watched it, whatever it was. But I remember once a punter actually walking up and talking to him about Columbo. It's just like, how more snail can this get? You know, in the background, John's doing something to do with the raft when I'm talking about Columbo with one of the punters. What else could be more ordinary on a Friday evening? I've got vague memories also of one time you being announced as Tony Columbo or something. <laughs> more than likely. That may have been on the camps, actually. I think you're right. <laughs> Yeah, dearie me, Tony Colombo, the legend. <laughs> oh, I remember when I did it, I think you always had an assorted cast of people that would duck in and out of doing these things. Uh-huh. And the weekend I did it, I was meeting you and Nathan Reynolds in Glasgow City Centre about 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning to get a lift to Southerness for the show with Alan Grogan and Mike Musso coming in the ring van. And when we got there in the car, we've kind of parked up and we went into this sort of a general office. And I couldn't believe, because I'd never been warmed up to this and it's not something I'd expected to be a thing, but I just couldn't believe how offish the staff were with us because we were the wrestling. And they were saying things that were just outright sort of a rude or like, you know, putting us down. And even inadvertently probably saying things that were rude or putting us down. So, for example, one of the girls said, oh, I hear that that big guy that you have is turning professional and moving to America. <laughs> and, <laughs> and in my mind, I just perceived this to be one of your lot, a bunch of amateurs is actually going to make something out of this. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's because of the mood I'm in because I was up so early on a Sunday morning, who knows, but I'm just hearing all these things. <laughs> And then other things kept happening, like you were told, right, there's no more discounts on drinks that you buy at the bars. Just all these little things like that. And to cut a long story short, then we like started doing this show and 
it was like two singles and then a tag with an interval in between. And I remember the entertainment's manager guy, I assume he was a manager, he was just so wanky. I just didn't take time at all. And it was almost like he was talking the show down to his audience. So he had a yeah. microphone. And, you know, this isn't something you'd really see at, say, a WWE show or a normal British show. He had a microphone and he's kind of doing commentary throughout, in a sense. Yeah. And he's just saying all these derogatory things. And I've kind of been a fan many years earlier where maybe the night before they'll make a sort of a quick tongue-in-cheek joke about, oh, we've got the ballet dancers on tomorrow. Oh, I mean, the professional wrestlers. That's kind of like, you know, the cheeky, chappy comedy but this guy, it really felt like he was just taking the piss. And I was just like, oh, what's this guy all about? And I'm thinking, if I was sat in the crowd with my kids, I don't want to hear the show getting talked down that I'm having to endure. I might not yeah. want to be here either. <laughs> but, you know, why is this guy that works here putting it down? Yeah, um, I mean, it was a case of pretty much from the first time we went. The first show we did there was actually really good. They were really good with us, and they uh, we did an outdoor show on that first weekend. For some reason, I can't quite remember why now. I think maybe something was happening in the venue and they said, would you mind doing an outdoor show? And I said, yeah, that's fine. You know, we'll do that. But pretty much from the next time where we were in the room that we were always in after that, pretty much from that time onwards, whoever was on the microphone, whether it be the Ents manager, Alex, or the girls, you know, the fun stars that would join in with that, the baby face would have a wrist lock and they would be going, oh, look, they're holding hands. And it's like... You're meant to be working with us here, you know, to sort of help put this over. If you're going to do anything, why would you do that? Yeah. And I genuinely don't think it's us being, like, you know, delicate about it, trying to protect the business or anything. It's really no. genuinely just, like, why are you actually being detrimental to the show? You're yeah. not just, like, standing back and not being interested. But rather you did nothing than, like, actually try to bring it down, which is well, going yeah. to ruin it for all those folk as well. And in the end that day, it really did. I don't know what pissed you off or anyone else involved because I'm just a lowly referee in this situation. But I remember it was decided, right, we're going to have an interval and then we're going to go out and it'll be like less than a minute for the main event. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were just taking the piss out of me at this point. And I thought, okay, maybe once we get in the ring, you know, it's just a sort of a joke on me. But no, nah, sure enough, like we started back and they still managed to have sort of a sly comment right away as well. But, you know, started this main event and like I'm calling for the bell to be rung, so to speak, <laughs> because that's the all over. Because tag team number ones came down, so that would have been you and Nathan. And then Maybe, tag team yeah. two would have been Grogan and Musso. And as soon as, like, you know, the faces are in, it was just a sort of a quick boom, 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 roll up, one, two, three, done. And I remember I've counted three and I've turned to this guy who's like the one with the microphone. I'm presuming he's Alex that you speak of. Yeah. And I've kind of done the actions of ring the bell. You know, we've got a winner. And his face just drops because you could see it was probably in his mind. The cogs are turning about what his next little snidey yeah. line's going to be. But then his face is actually dropped and he puts his microphone down a little bit and he goes, what, is that it? And I was like, yep, that's it. Ring the bell, you know, ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> And I remember it was worth it to see the look in his face. But here's where it gets to another ridiculous part about that day. Coincidentally, Michelle McLean, Spinner's wife, has got a gig there that day. And this is in the run-up to you getting married. So see once the show is done and we've dismantled the ring, and then we've went and had some food, then Spinner's teaching you how to dance for your oh. wedding. 
Yeah. <laughs> and I just love the idea of me personally getting to watch you and Spinner waltzing around for your first dance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine as a visual that would have been quite interesting. And I just wish that someone had walked in like that guy Alex, for example, <laughs> and seen you and Spinner dancing. Yeah, I hadn't put two and two together and realised that that would have been the same day. But, I mean, talking of things that happened on that particular weekend of shows, this is something you jogged my memory on, actually, and I hadn't remembered. But you were actually there in the van with us when the instant that the name of this podcast is taken from happened. The, is it Shane Ritchie? Or, you know, that wasn't the specific quote. It was actually, oh, look, it's fucking Shane Ritchie, okay? (laughs) Yeah, Um, that's right. And the only reason I was there at all is that was the May Bank holiday, wasn't it? So that's right, yeah. Because I was working full time, so in principle, I could never have done the Monday shows for you, even if I'd done a Sunday show. But yeah, since I was off, you said I'll oh, come along and just experience the camp. So yeah, I was there when it's fucking Shane Ritchie was born, <laughs> <laughs> and that yeah. all came from that game, didn't it? That you and Grogan were playing for. Yeah, it was uh, twenty questions, but really it should have been called. Ask as many questions as you can, either until somebody guesses it or like everyone loses the will to live. We definitely got there with it. <laughs> <laughs> but the funny thing about that was, it's just me, you and Grogan in the van when this has happened. And it's no word of a lie to say this was going on for about, what, 45 minutes, an hour, something like that. Easily easy and you know if you think about that in real time that's quite a long time for this to be going on especially then when you get to the climax of Shane fucking rich you know (laughs) yeah it was it was just me asking stupid questions like okay is it Paul Merton you know normally you would ask like is it a man is it a woman I'm just straight in with like is it Paul Merton is it Bobby (laughs) Duval like is (laughs) is it Paul Merton's dad is it Paul Merton's uncle is it Paul Merton's auntie? Are they related to Paul Merton? How about now? <laughs> <laughs> so the following day, the crew was going to be different, wasn't it? So yeah. we were staying over in Glasgow. We were staying over specifically at Andy, like Red Lightning's flat in the West End. And he was going to be on this show the next day. I can't remember who the fourth man was. I've got a feeling it was Vinny, Vinny Karma. Yeah, you might be right there. But what happened was we've all got to Glasgow after, you know, we've got up the road from Southernness and the infamous, is it Shane Ritchie? And, um, you know, the intention was to have a few drinks, funnily enough, just for a change. And being a bank holiday weekend, it was actually quite lively, wasn't it, in the pubs and stuff? Yeah. But what would happen is, see, because this was such a big part of our afternoon, the whole game that had been played for so long, you know, about an hour, maybe more, Every now and again, one of us would just be like taking a sip of a pint, then shake the head and go, ah, Shane Ritchie. <laughs> <laughs> and the other two that had been in the van would just piss themselves laughing. But Andy's totally oblivious to like... Yeah, because Andy hadn't been there. Yeah. He's not been there and no one's actually explained, yeah, you'll never guess what we did this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> There's just been the odd reference to, um, ah, Shane fucking Richie. <laughs> and when he's sober, he's like, oh, what are you talking about? But we couldn't describe it because then it set us off laughing and stuff. Yeah. And we would just move on. But then as you know, the night's going on and we've been around a few pubs and I think it was Great Western Road or something like that or Byers Road. And then we've said, oh, we're going to head into the town now and go to the casino. 
So we've all went into the casino and we're still drinking, we're gambling, we're oh. like the four horsemen of Glasgow. You know? <laughs> I remember particularly being in the casino and I think you maybe ended the night slightly up or whatever it was. I think Alan maybe broke even. I was maybe like a tenner down. And Andy, who was also a tenner down, just being absolutely fucking devastated, like to the point of like suicide was practically on the cards, you know, at the notion of like him being a tenner down. I remember just sort of like being in such a mood that night, you know, because he'd lost this tenner. Oh, yeah, he went in such a downer. And I think actually that was one of the nights where I lost. I'd had this run at the casino where I couldn't lose. Whatever I bet on, it came up. And this went on for several months. I just couldn't lose. And then I'm betting in football matches and I couldn't lose. It was so weird. And then, like, it started to drop off and I'd lose. And then I'd win, but then I'd lose and I'd win, then I'd lose. Mm -hmm. And that night, I'm pretty sure I lost something along the lines of a grand, you know. It was actually a lot of money. (laughs) I was still up overall, but I've just still lost a grand, you know what I mean? So it's Uh annoying. And in the background, you've got Andy harping on about his tenor. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I'm thinking, I've just dropped a brass band and you're going on about a tenor. And I remember thinking, Christ, I'm just going to open my wallet and give him a tenor just so he shuts up. Because <laughs> I remember that night, like, we're all drunk by the time we got there. Let's not kid ourselves. When we get into that casino, we've already had a few. And I remember you were just wanting to copy whatever I was doing <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> but it was just like... I was betting more, so you'd put like say like twenty on when I'm putting two hundred on or whatever, and you'd win some, you'd lose some, and then like uh-huh. we'd sort of separate it out. And some points would be me and you, some points would be me and Grog and whatever. But there's always drink involved. But like even though all this gambling's still going on, even though I've managed to lose a bit of brass band, we're still every now and again <laughs> Shane fucking Richie, you know, and, <laughs> and like you know me, you and Grogan are just cracking up every time. But because of the drink. And because he's lost his tenor, at some point in time, <laughs> Andy, when we say it's fucking Shane Ritchie, Andy goes tonto. I don't know if you remember this, but... Yes, I do. He, he properly <laughs> went mental because he thought, and he's probably been thinking this for about eight hours at this point, that we've been plotting <laughs> against him calling him Shane Ritchie for yeah, some thought, obscure reason. Yeah, he thought we were taking the piss out of him because I think he just had a new haircut or something. Like, and <laughs> He's thinking we're taking the piss out of him because he looks like Shane Ritchie or something. <laughs> and what I remember to this day is, I'm no fucking Shane Ritchie. I'm no fucking That's Shane right. Ritchie. <laughs> <laughs> And I can't remember where that happened, if it was inside the casino, if it was in the takeaway shop in the town, or if it was at the taxi rank. In fact, it must have been before the taxi rank, because (laughs) when we got into the taxi rank... The guy that tried to get in the taxi with us. Yeah, exactly. So, bank holiday Sunday night stroke Monday morning now. It's now about two or three in the morning, I'd guess. Oh, it's got to be easily. Maybe later, actually. Who knows? But anyways. You know, all the clubs have finished and are finishing up. So the queue for the taxi rank at Central Station in Glasgow is massive. You'd think it was five o'clock on a Friday rather than four o'clock on a Monday morning. But they've got like, you know, taxi rank stewards there. These people are supposed Uh to be making sure people aren't skipping and things like that. And there's also a nice wee police presence because it is Glasgow after all. 
And that's not even mentioning the uh, police presence when we were out in Great Western Road or whatever it was. Oh, yeah, we'll come on to that in a minute. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> but at the taxi rank, though, we're in this like queue, aren't we? And it felt like the queue for an execution. It was massive. In fact, I think we're actually around the corner on a Renfield Street when we joined the queue. You know, it's that big. But we've joined the queue and there's just a lack of taxis. You know, taxis are obviously just getting people home, then racing back in. But there's just not enough of them. And we've joined the back of the queue legitimately. And then as we're making our way on in the queue, after a good, say, 10 minutes or something, this guy appears, doesn't he? And he just starts talking to us as if he knew Andy or me or something like that. Yeah, he's trying to kid on that, like, oh, you know, I went to school with you and all of this. Don't you remember me and all this? And Andy just very matter-of-factly goes, mate, I don't fucking know you. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't give up, did he? No, he hung around with us. But then, if you remember, we got to the front and we've kind of been trying to ditch this guy more proactively at this point. And we've got to the front of the queue and it's finally our turn. You know, our carriage awaits. And we steam into the taxi. I remember that I'm sat sort of like closest to the door. And I don't know who's beside me. I can't remember who's across from me, but I'm just sat right at the door that we've just walked in. And this guy's like trying to get in just before we're getting in. But at this point, I think the taxi stewards have noticed us saying, you're not fucking with us, mate. Get to fucking all this. And they've sort of stepped in and we've went into the taxi ourselves without this guy. But then at some point, just as we're all in, we're just getting our seatbelts on or whatever, and just as we're about to close the door, he sort of breaks free from these taxi stewards, and he makes a run for it to jump in with us, <laughs> and the door shut just as he got there, and he yeah, went smashing in like a dart head first. <laughs> yeah, he sort of made a run and jump for it, and then like you couldn't have timed it any better if you tried, because the door just shuts on him, like, and he just goes head first into the door. Yep, and like I think the last we've seen of him was, you know, the taxis starting to do a U-turn on and this then, Gordon he, Street, and we can see him getting picked up. Yeah, we, he's, he's getting led away by like, these people. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, so that was his interaction with the police getting picked up off the ground. But yeah, you're right, like we'd left, I don't even know what pub it was. I don't even know if I know what it was in the night, I was oh, already no, pissed. No way. <laughs> But I actually had genuinely as well, I wasn't just trying to be, you know, sly and be cheeky and take these drinks along the road. I had genuinely forgotten, like we left in sort of a hurry and I forgot that I was holding this picture. Like (laughs) that probably gives an indication of how badly gone we were that like I didn't even realise that I was holding a picture in my hand. It's like, Well, I should clarify, Carl, like you're saying you were holding a picture. I would say you were holding yours because we all had at least one. <laughs> <laughs> we were all on pictures of Stella Artois, aren't we? And but, the, but the thing is, like, none of us had any glasses. Like, by the time we left the I just no. had this picture, so what the I was going to do was <laughs> just pour it straight into my mouth. I don't know. And yeah, and we're, like, walking from that pub to wherever we're going next. And, yeah, we got huckled by a couple of detectives, didn't we? <laughs> or were they uniformed? Yeah, yeah no, they were in uniform. Were they uniformed? I was gone, do you know what I mean? I can't really remember, but I just remember having the chat with them. <laughs> I remember their faces. Reason being, I mean, I got spoken to, you know, much more than the rest of you guys because I ended up getting a little bit lippy with her. <laughs> she was quite condescending about it, you know. It's like, you know, you're not allowed to do this and you're not allowed to do that. And it's like, okay, calm down. I think I actually problem, said that. Car wash, yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually went, okay, calm down. <laughs> I, I went like, calm down. 
calm down. Look, for fuck's sake, you know. And that's, you know, obviously when the tone changed again. Yeah. And, you know. I think her pal was really chilled and laid back and he's probably thinking, God, I'm in this shift with her all night and she's a pain in the arse. Uh, you know, guys, just like put the pictures back where you got them and we'll move on with life. <laughs> <laughs> I genuinely forgot that I was carrying it because, I mean, you know, I'm three sheets to the wind and it just hasn't occurred to me that I've even got this thing with me. And it's yeah. still fairly full as well. You know, it's at least half full. So quite how I haven't realised that I'm carrying this thing. And then, like, you know, we went back to Andy's flat and we're probably just all crashed. And then we wake up, we go to the next place. And I suppose in my mind, going in, the only thing I knew about Weems Bay was one of the entertainers that was quite infamous amongst the crew that had already been this um, <laughs> <laughs> this woman, Pippa. And, oh, uh, yes. And, like, being blunt, I didn't know if that was part of the initiation ceremony. If you're doing the camps, <laughs> you had to go back with Phyllis or whatever her name was. That's right. Um, her real name was Phyllis, wasn't it? But she hated being called that, so she called herself Pippa. Yeah, And absolutely. she would actually get really arsy with us calling her Phyllis all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I think she must have just been very busy the night before with whoever had been there. Because she was quite uh, well behaved the day I was there. At least around me. I don't know who else is busy with her. I mean... <laughs> At the time that we met her, like we met her the first week that we went there, and she said at that time that she'd only ever had two people in her whole life. Whether she was lying or not, I don't know. But I know by about a month later, she'd had at least six of our crew. Um, (laughs) And there was that thing as well where she used to rate people out of 10. You would go back the next week and you'd be waiting for the update on like who had got what score the previous week. Liam was the first one to have ventured in shall we say and the next week when we got back there we found out she'd rated him a six and a half out of ten and for probably about the next year of Liam's life everything had a 6.5 or a six and a half reference in it (laughs) even to the point where Spinner's wife Michelle's like doing the singing at our wedding and Liam's there, and like there's people getting up on the dance floor and, you know, she's singing and people are dancing. And I think there was one song where maybe people had sort of sung along with it. You know, it's one of them numbers. And like after the song, she says, well, that was OK, you know, but I reckon that was probably only about a six and a half. I reckon you could do a lot better than that. And then it's like, <laughs> as Liam just sort of cringes in the corner. It's like... <laughs> brilliant, isn't it? I heard that Bobby Davro got an eight. <laughs> I don't even want to think about that. <laughs> but yeah, like so, that was actually, I suppose, a disappointment in a sense that I was like, you know, expecting this really wacky character, but she must have been hung over or just shagged, so to speak. Um, <laughs> Literally. But, but what I remember, and I don't know if this was always the case, but I remember like the place that we were getting changed. We had to go in one at a time because it was just so cramped and full of shit. And then it was my turn to go and get changed because I just wasn't spaced. It wasn't like we were shy around each other, you know. Yeah. Typically how it worked is if you're at a venue, you're all in like one or two rooms and you're all just getting changed amongst each other. Or no one's uh-huh. looking. It's like, I suppose it's the same as if guys all go and play five a side. You're just all going to get changed together. There was no one being shy. But uh-huh. the time I was at this camp, there was just no space. So like you're in one at a time to get changed. And I don't think I could even stand upright and stuff like that. It was just so cramped. But then at some point I got my phone to just try and see what the hell the stuff was. And it was stuff like, I imagine since that holiday camp had been opened, 
the room that I was getting changed in was essentially all the outfits that Pippa oh. and her predecessors have yes. ever, ever worn. Yes. And, <laughs> and, but they've never, like, you know, put them on shelves or in boxes. It's just all these, like, ladies' high heels and dresses for playing Disney princesses or whatever and, are just scattered like, all around. And, like, giant heads from the mascots just up on the wall, like... <laughs> you just staring down at you as you get your strides down. <laughs> but, I mean... Going back to Pippa there for just a second, Liam actually went back for a second visit. Oh, Christ. And somebody told me this recently, actually, when we were up in Scotland and we met up and everything, like somebody told me Liam had gone back for a second time and he'd managed to get up to something like a seven on the second visit. And he was like, I'm happy with that. You know, I'll stick at seven. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. If only you knew that Orville the Duck at 7.5. <laughs> But yeah, like I maybe wish I'd done more of the camps just for that entertainment factor, but I found it to be pretty bleak the one weekend I did it. And it was maybe because in traditional Scottish style, bank holiday weekends in Scotland are very rarely sunny, joyful affairs. It was just yeah. pissing down the whole time and all that, so <laughs> at least yeah. it wasn't a gala day. Oh, God. I did plenty of them. They were the other end of bleak, even from that weekend, but... I just remember us dropping you off wherever it was we dropped you off after the show on the Monday. I think you travelled in the back of the van on the way back from Weems Bay. And I just remember sort of like you coming out the shutters and just being so fucking demoralised. Like, <laughs> I thought like we were going to have to call Andy to come and give you some counselling. Like, you know, draw on his wisdom from his experience the previous night. <laughs> you know what's funny? I can remember. I don't know where I get dropped off. I would guess it was around George Square or thereabouts. Because I remember stood waiting for a bus on a bank holiday Monday night to get me up the road. And, you know, the service is like one every hour and a half or something. Uh-huh. And I'm just stood and I've got my VMP3 player. Uh-huh. And I'm just listening to the same song and repeat, just staring, <laughs> waiting for a bus to come. Yeah. Not an idea of what's happening with a snooker final. Not an idea of what happened with a James Bond film it was on. <laughs> I'd been through Southerness and Weems Bay, God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> You're standing there listening to Radiohead, or the drugs don't work. <laughs> like... You know what? I can actually tell you the song it was. I remember because I was still listening to it on repeat. And <laughs> but this is weird, actually. This isn't any relevance to your podcast. It was a song that the first time I'd heard it, it was on repeat because the DJ was stoned and he was so stoned he just kept playing the same <laughs> song on repeat. <laughs> for about six hours. This was like a house party when I worked in a nightclub. And it was this guy, Richie. He thought of himself as being an aspiring DJ. He's totally scooped. He's stoned out his head and whatever else he's taking. And he just kept playing this song called La La Land by Green Velvet over and over and over. And for whatever reason, I've downloaded it and I'm stood on Glassford Street waiting on a bus, <laughs> staring ahead into oblivion with this same song on repeat. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> But then, you know, next morning, Tuesday morning, into the office, how was your long weekend? Oh, it was great, thanks. How was yours? <laughs> <laughs> you know, around the corner from Central Station, there's a street, I can never remember the name of the street, it might be Argyle Street, it might be something else, where all the buses go. Just around the corner from Central Station, whatever street that is. I remember sitting there, I think it must have been when I was living in East Kilbride, and I'd been up in Glasgow, like, for a job interview or something, like, to register with an agency or whatever it might be. And I'm sitting waiting for the bus back to East Kilbride. 
And I don't realise at the time, but Andy's also sitting there waiting for that bus because he's going to Collins, like and probably about 400 other people. But <laughs> this guy comes along, like sits down at the bus shelter, leans back, and the entire bus shelter just falls out and like lands on the road and shatters on the road. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've seen worse Channel 4 comedy series that are basically trying to exploit what really went on in your wife for a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Another one of those crazy, depressing times was the first show we ran in Stirling in February 2005. And the snowstorm. The snow was horrendous all around the country and the ring never turned up. Urban warrior, Ron, who I'd got to do the ring that particular time, I think, yeah, it was probably because I was on the outs with Colin and I couldn't use his ring. And then that's how that sort of ended up happening, that Ron would come up and do the jobs. Yeah, he sets off, and I'm getting phone calls from him throughout the day. The ring van gets stuck. Oh, we're stuck, you know, we're stuck here, we're stuck there, and it's like, right, I should be able to get it out, you know, we should be able to... Well, do you know how long you're going to be? Because, you know, time's kicking on and on and on and on. And eventually it gets to a point where, right, the ring van's fucked. Oh, fucking hell. First show at a new venue, and they're thinking that we're amateur hour anyway because of this. You know, and that reputation kind of stuck. Even though, I mean, I'm sort of proud of what we did in Sterling. You know, I think that we actually did some good business there in the end. I'm actually surprised, Carl, that that was the first show there, because, yeah, I always remember that being a good venue. Yeah, I mean, that was the first show where we're there, everybody's there, and the ring's not there, and we had to reschedule for two days later. That was one of them times where, after we made the decision where we had to cancel the show because the ring just couldn't get there, I remember just saying to everybody, pub. (laughs) and it's one of them times where you just I need a drink (laughs) let's go to the pub I think we ended up in a couple of different pubs just along the road from the hall but yeah that was one of them sort of stressful trying times that now you know it's just another part of the menagerie of this craziness that you know we all lived for so long but (laughs) well I remember one of the pubs we went into and I think we kind of settled there for an hour or so we walked in and there was no other punters, just a barman watching the bill. Yeah. <laughs> and he seemed to have his nose out of joint at the idea of people disrupting him watching the bill. Yeah, the, the idea he'd actually got customers to serve. Yeah, exactly. He's like, don't you appreciate I've got the bill? Reg Hollis is on just now, God damn it. Well, I'm sure you had some empathy with him, you know. <laughs> I'm surprised I never stood at the bar and watched it with him. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, that was a depressing day. Quote of the week, I say. Yes, it's quote of the week. And this week's quote of the week is... It's been an eventful weekend. One of my absolute favourite weekends that we ever did, one of my absolute favourite times in or out of wrestling, was the weekend that ended with us doing Four for Gala Day. The whole weekend from start to finish was just absolutely brilliant. So many things happened and so many ridiculous things happened. I mean, it started off like we were doing a show in Kilmarnock on the Friday for BCW. That was when I first started working for BCW again, after that sort of two-year period where I was on the outs with them. I remember meeting you in the afternoon at Central Station in Glasgow. 
and us, you know, going off to get our pasties and get the train to Kilmarnock and finding a pub there because it was a World Cup at the time. So we went and watched, I think it was a Germany game. I think it was Germany and Argentina, someone like that. I remember us going to watch that. And then we went off to the hall, did the show. And the show in Kilmarnock wasn't really notable for all that much, really, at least compared to the subsequent carnage that we would experience, you know, throughout the weekend. But the one part of the weekend that I wish you had been there for was after the show in Kilmarnock on the Friday. We were staying at Andy's place, and you and Carmel and I think a couple of others maybe had gone off to get the bus from the bus station, and we'd sort of dropped you off on the way, and then we'd carried on to Andy's. We'd gone to Andy's local takeaway, and he'd warned us in advance that the guy serving in there was an absolute, complete and utter dipshit, and barely spoke any English whatsoever. The worst part about me telling this story is that no matter how accurately I describe the experience of being there, no matter how much detail I put in, there's absolutely no way I can even come close to justifying just how incredibly funny an experience it was. It's one of those things where you really had to be there to appreciate it. And I can still remember the feeling of my chest and stomach hurting from me literally crying with laughter of like the events of that night. We went in and we looked at the menu on the wall, chose what we wanted, and we went to order. But then sort of things hit a snag when we realised that rather than having very little grasp of the English language, like Andy had said, the guy serving actually had absolutely no grasp of the English language whatsoever and probably knew about five words in total, which unfortunately didn't sort of stretch to the words chicken, cheese, Maltesers, or interestingly enough, korma. We found out the guy was called Hardeep, and how we found that out, I'm not sure whether Andy had found it out previously, but we subsequently sort of renamed him Hardip Shit. <laughs> but the thing is, when it was Andy doing most of the talking, it magnified what was already a funny situation into something absolutely hilarious. And I don't need to explain this to you because you know Andy, you know what he was like sort of thing. But it just became one of the most hilarious experiences. I mean, Andy, as well as sort of doing stupid things to try and get a rise out of people and entertain people, you know, like the mischievous kid in school who does stupid things at his own expense sometimes, he was also quite sort of forthright sometimes. You know, he was quite forward in saying things that maybe other people might not have said, you know, to sort of keep the peace where he just didn't give a shit, basically. And sort of couple that with his natural cheekiness. And, you know, things that might otherwise be sort of mundane, you know, end up being funny. And things that are already funny end up being absolutely magical. To get round the language barrier, instead of telling hard dipshit what we wanted, we tried pointing to what we wanted on the menu, which it turned out he couldn't see from where he was, so that was that scuppered. <laughs> we then tried giving him the numbers of the items on the menu, but again, he didn't have a clue because he didn't know what the numbers were. Eventually... Somehow we managed to start sort of establishing some form of communication. I think we actually took the menu down off the wall and put it on the counter in front of him and then went back to sort of pointing to what we wanted. Liam was the first one to order. And when they'd taken his order, I mean, that took however long in the first place, but the guy just sort of disappeared into the kitchen. And me nor Andy have had the chance to, you know, give him our orders. He just disappeared into the kitchen. I thought, well, all right, he must be going off and telling them, then coming back. But he didn't come back for about ten minutes. 
and he eventually came back with Liam's food. Meanwhile, we're just standing there. Like, me and Andy hadn't even been given the chance to order. The guy just took Liam's order and fucked off for ten minutes. He came and took my order, and then he fucked off again. <laughs> All the while, like, Andy trying to call him back to put his order in as well, but he just either can't hear him or can't understand him, or both. And Andy was starting to get annoyed at this point, you know, because me and Liam have both put our orders in. Andy still hasn't had a chance. And by this point, Liam's got his food, and it's going cold. But when the guy finally came back again with my food, we asked him if he could put Liam's food back under the counter to keep it warm, you know, while we were waiting. Which, you know, was sort of met by a really confused look and us trying to explain. Until he eventually said, Yes, it's warm. You asked for warm. No, could you put it under the counter to keep it warm until we've got all the food and we can go and eat it? Yes, is warm. You wanted warm. No. And we're just there at this total standoff with the guy. And then he just turned round and fucked off again. At this point, Andy's starting to absolutely lose it. Because he's been waiting nearly half an hour at this point, And he's still not even been given a chance to order. We've both got our food now. Not that we can eat it, because, you know, there's nowhere in the place to sit and eat. It's just a takeaway. There's no chairs or anything in there. Liam's food's practically stone cold, and mine's starting to head that way. But, I mean, we don't care, because now we've got the entertainment of Andy starting to lose his shit because of this idiot behind the counter, who's yet again just fucked off somewhere, leaving Andy without even being able to order yet. So, I mean, the entertainment value's growing at this point. Eventually, the guy comes back out again. And by this point, more customers are coming to the shop, and they're also waiting to be served now. And this included, like, a very drunk, 50-ish-year-old bloke. One of them guys from the pub, you know, that just starts talking to you, and who you wish hadn't started talking to you. <laughs> this guy starts banging on about having a gun in his car, and, like, various other stuff. And then when the guy serving reappears from having a dump or wherever he's just been for the last five minutes, the guy spots him points at him and shouts, He's wearing an Irish jig! Chris just made us absolutely crack up laughing. And, you know, we realised we hadn't even noticed before he was wearing an Irish jig, or <laughs> wig for any listeners who don't speak Ouija rhyming slang. Hard dipshit, you know, of course, didn't have a clue what the guy was on about. He then came over to the counter and said, you know, who's next? At which point Andy thinks his luck's finally in, you know. So he goes along to where the guy's standing and says, he's next. And the guy just looks at him, starts smiling, has a little chuckle, and then skips Andy completely, and goes along the queue to the next guy, and starts asking him what he wants. And now Andy's absolutely raging. Like, <laughs> me and Liam are trying our best to hold it together, you know, because we're staying at Andy's flat that night, you know, we don't want to be stuck with nowhere to go sort of thing. Andy sort of butts in and goes, No, I'm next to order. Which then starts off an argument again, as the guy goes, Why you not order? Why you not order? You know, the fact that he was never even given a chance to order when me and Liam were getting our food seemed totally beyond his comprehension sort of thing. And the two of them started going back and forth arguing with neither of them really understanding what the other one was saying. And Andy was still getting absolutely nowhere and getting any food. The sound of the two of them arguing back and forth then brought out another guy from the kitchen who then started conversing with hard dipshit in whatever language they were talking. As they were talking, we noticed that dipshit number two that had come out from the kitchen was wearing a t-shirt with the word cunt written on it in big letters. <laughs> K-H-U-N-T, which, I mean, all three of us were sort of increasingly inclined to agree with the apt description of sort of both of them. 
after Andy was finally allowed to put his order in, you know, which again was a task in itself, I happened to look in my bag of increasingly cold food and realised that I'd only been given one naan bread instead of the two that I'd ordered. And this then sort of brought about more confusion and arguments in broken English. I'm sure the guy must have thought we were on the wind-up or something, but for once we actually weren't. We just wanted our food and to be able to go and eat it before it was even colder. As we were waiting for my additional naan bread to turn up, along with Andy's food, we passed the time by talking to the pissed 50-year-old bloke about everything ranging from the World Cup to hard dipshit's Irish jig. Meanwhile, hard dipshit and the guy with cunt written on his t-shirt buzzed around the place looking stressed and confused, which wasn't helped by the pissed bloke just shouting random things like Wiggy! and Cunt Face! And I even managed to sneak in a rendition of the Bee Gees classic Hard Deep Is Your Love which again sort of fell on deaf ears. Andy's meal and my missing naan bread eventually turned up, and as we headed to leave and said goodbye to the piss bloke, Andy decided that he wanted to buy some chocolate as well for after, which was in a display behind the counter. So, after looking at the selection, he settled on a pack of Maltesers, and he told Hard Deep Is Your Love what he wanted, but as before, the guy just stood there, smiled, and then laughed at him, thinking Andy was joking. Having settled down after he'd finally got the food he'd been waiting so long for, Andy was now fucking raging again, and the two of them started going back and forth again, with hard dipshit going, My friend! And then just shouting and rambling, something totally incoherent. And he again buggered off to consult with the man with cunt written on his t-shirt. Me and Liam were absolutely losing it at this point, and as angry as he was, even Andy was laughing now, just because of how utterly ridiculous this all was. When the guy came back, he explained in his broken English again that he wasn't allowed to sell the chocolates to Andy because he didn't know how much they were. The guy then picked up the display and took all of the chocolate to the back of the shop and hid it behind one of the kebab machines. Then he came back and said, No, there is no chocolate. You can't have it. (laughs) Andy... As you can imagine, absolutely lost it at this point, and so did me and Liam, but in a completely different way. Andy was absolutely fucking furious and started arguing back and forth with the guy again. Meanwhile, me and Liam were laughing so hard we were struggling to breathe, and I just had tears absolutely streaming out of my eyes as I thought about the guy taking the chocolate away and hiding it, then pretending it never existed, as Andy was just going absolutely fucking ballistic. Andy wasn't letting it go, though, and eventually he managed to convince the guy to sell him a caramel bar and a crunchy, which, again, he didn't know the prices of. I don't know what happened to the Maltesers. The guy then asked Andy how much he was willing to pay for the two chocolate bars. This really was getting fucking ridiculous now, and the sight of Andy and hard dipshit haggling and bartering back and forth over the price of these two chocolate bars was just fucking magical, and it just set me and Liam off again. We just absolutely howled with laughter, and when we were finally able to compose ourselves, Andy's still haggling with the guy over the price of these two chocolate bars, and we start chipping into the bargaining process, offering like a bag of potatoes, two camels, a rug, like whatever else we could think of. And they eventually settled on a price of one pound for the precious chocolate. And just as Andy was about to pay, Mr. Cunt turned up again, with the drunk 50-year-old bloke's order, who then looked in the bag and started going mental because they'd done him completely the wrong food. 
Mr. Cunt and our dipshit then started arguing back and forth again with the guy who was raging and saying he was going to go and get his gun from the car and stuff. Eventually everything got settled down and Andy was able to pay for the chocolate. But then as we went to leave and were heading towards the door, hard dipshit went to Andy. You happy now? You happy? And at that point you're just thinking, come on Andy, just leave it, please. But no. And he walks back over to the counter and goes, no, I'm not happy. I'm not happy at all. And then starts another back and forth argument with the guy for another couple of minutes. While me and Liam just start laughing. And by the time we got out of there, we were so weak from laughing, we could barely open the car doors to get in. It was just absolutely surreal. And I remember when we met up with you the next day at uh, St Enoch Centre, telling you about all of this and just how utterly ridiculous it all was. <laughs> oh, but we set off from there to head up to my place in Ayleth to watch the England-Portugal World Cup game. And I think we got probably about 100 yards along the road, didn't we? And then it was just gridlocked. We hadn't realised that there was an orange walk in Glasgow that day. And we'd got stuck in the traffic from the fallout of that. And I just remember us sitting there, maybe moving about 200 yards in about two hours. And as we were doing that, you know crawling along at a snail's pace in the car Liam was running out of petrol you know it was dangerously low to the point where if we didn't get some petrol really soon you know it would actually conk out in the middle of the road and we'd be absolutely stuck but I mean people were leaving their cars and going for takeaways (laughs) and then coming back and the cars hardly moved sort of thing (laughs) I remember as well at one point you know people were randomly beeping their horns and you can see people coming out of the barber shop that they own shouting and bawling at the traffic. So the first time I seen this, I said, right, Liam, EastEnders theme. And whoever's in the passenger seat did the EastEnders theme on Liam's car horn. Yeah. <laughs> I was in the front passenger seat, it was me. So it might have been you, it was either Liam or you, I think it might have been you. <laughs> yeah, it was me. Because <laughs> then we yeah, started doing sure. all sorts of other things like... And after the second time, I'm sure people were joining in with this shit. Yeah. It was like, do, 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 do. And then another car would finish it off. Like, do, do. Oh, dear. I remember, as well as sort of beeping the horns and all the fun that came along with that, I remember there was a drunk girl that was off her head on cider. She was sitting perched on this fence. And eventually just slumped forward and fell off head first. <laughs> and her mate comes and picks her up and she's just sat there for an hour holding her head while her mate rubs her back. <laughs> and we eventually got moving and finally made it to a petrol station by the skin of our teeth and just, you know, managed to get some petrol in the car. It was running on fumes by that stage. But then when we got a bit further up the road, we picked up Laurie on the way in Stirling. And because of the traffic, by the time we got to ours, we'd missed most of the game. We finally got there for the last few minutes of extra time and the penalty shootout. Do you remember after this going out into Aleph, like the little village that was closest to where we lived, to get some food? Yeah, um, I think we went to, like, it was a newsagent and a chippy, wasn't it? Well, we started off in a Chinese. Right. But we decided against that because there was a bloke in there that had pissed himself. We eventually went to the chippy there, you know, and they could actually speak English in there, which was helpful. 
and we went and sat and ate the chips and whatever we'd got on the benches in the village square. And then fucking Andy again starts throwing chips into the middle of the road for the seagulls, which results in loads of passing cars nearly crashing as they had to swerve to avoid these fucking seagulls. And it was just causing absolute chaos. And eventually when we got ready to leave, he'd got a load of leftover chips for some reason, so he sticks them on the top of a car. <laughs> and then this starts getting dive bombed by a load of seagulls and there's like bird shit all over this person's car and just absolute chaos. But my abiding memory of us being up there at that time was standing outside the spa shop over the river from the village square with you and Laurie. We'd already been in to get our stuff. And we stood there talking and all of a sudden something comes whizzing past my head. And I look and it's a timeout chocolate bar. <laughs> so... I move over, I look in the shop, and it's fucking Andy, standing in the middle of the spa shop, grabbing chocolate bars off the shelf, and chucking them out the door. <laughs> and, you know, I'm instantly sort of moving away, because I'm worried, like, if one lands anywhere near me, you know, I'm getting the blame. Because <laughs> you know, I live round there, you know, I regularly visit that shop. I mean, I didn't for a few weeks after that, but... <laughs> Yeah, I just look, and there's Andy sort of standing in the middle of the shop, just lobbing chocolate bars out the door. And there's one went under a car and, like, nearly made that car crash. And <laughs> it's just this absolute fucking chaos from start to finish. But then we went to Dave and Sharon's, where they were living at the time, at Armbog, which was the name of the farm they lived at in Meagle. I remember us all drinking way too much, because I think Dave had this really lethal homebrew stuff that he'd been doing. And that was the night where he ended up getting so drunk that he climbed up the uh, potato crates and then fucked his ankle when he fell off. <laughs> and then we're all sat around in the living room. And you know that sort of thing where you're trying to get a line out, but it keeps getting interrupted. And every time it keeps getting interrupted, it's even funnier than the last time. And by the time you finally get the line out, it's not even worth saying sort of thing. Well, it was one of them because he started going on about his daughter about her potentially dating and he started going if my daughter's boyfriend <laughs> and every time he got to that bit of the sentence something or someone would interrupt him and he would have to start again if my daughter's boyfriend and then something else would interrupt him again and by the time he actually finally got to the you know saying the full sentence it just wasn't worth bothering with you know? <laughs> Oh, but that was another one of them nights that was just, you know, a sort of a drunken haze in the end. Oh, absolutely, and I still remember that to this day. If my daughter's boyfriend... <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if that was the night where we ended up jumping up and down tractors and stuff next door as well, but... Uh... <laughs> I don't remember that. I might have gone home by that point. <laughs> well, you know what it's like at some points people just passed out as well so you might have been in that category but, Yeah, uh, maybe Actually, in fairness, I think some people were still inside chatting away and it was myself and probably Andy It's probably a fair guess, isn't it? <laughs> that you'd be involved I don't even think it was strictly speaking on the land that Dave was on It was this sort of a M shed with a big tractor in it Oh, and I mean, yeah. you know, one of these tractors where the tyre was as tall as I am, and I'm about 5 foot 11 <laughs> or something. And of course, Andy's up on the tractor trying to get it started <laughs> at 3 in the morning. <laughs> and again, just think about all that stuff happened pretty much in a 24 hour period. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> 
But I mean, the following morning when we went off to do the gala day in Forfa, I mean, this is almost like an afterthought at this point. <laughs> yeah, for um, a show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, we get there. Dave's sat-nav gets us to the park where the gala day is. Dave had the minibus and the trailer at the time, and the trailer's sort of swaying about all over the place because the minibus just wasn't suitable for pulling that trailer. And when we got there, like we were trying to manoeuvre in and out of this quite narrow entrance, and in the end, the trailer gets wedged, completely stuck in between the gate to go into the park and a wall, and we just can't move anywhere. So eventually we had to get out of the van and we all had to sort of disconnect the trailer from the van. Dave has to manoeuvre about and drive the van into the park. Meanwhile, like Jambo when he's drunk, we're sort of walking this trailer from where it's got stuck and eventually sort of manoeuvre it round, walk this trailer bit by bit into the park so that we can then reattach it to the van. But we got in, we set the ring up next to the bandstand, and we went and found Joe Harkin, who was our contact for doing the gala day. Because he promised us, I don't know if you remember this, he promised us that we would have a tent to get changed in. And <laughs> me being naive sort of thinks, okay, you know, yeah, we can do that. And I'm thinking when he says a tent, I'm not thinking it's going to be a marquee or anything like that. <laughs> but I'm thinking, okay, it's going to be a reasonable size because there's going to be a few of us, you know. And the tent's not there. And we keep asking Joe about the tent, because time's rolling on by this point. We're meant to start the show at one o'clock, and it's now ten past one, and the tent's not even there. So there's nowhere for us to get changed. We can't do anything until this tent gets here. And there was a girl called Karen B. from the local radio station, TFM. And she comes in. She's opening the gala day, because she's allegedly this sort of local celeb that you bring in for these things. She does her announcement to about four people watching at the bandstand. She then comes down, like, in a mood. She goes to us, where's Tommy? And we just went, who's Tommy? And then she just fucked off. She just stormed off in a huff and disappeared over this field, like, never to be seen again. <laughs> probably still there. <laughs> probably, yeah, she's probably still walking. Legend has it she's still walking to this day. But... Yeah, we're waiting and waiting for this tent to turn up. And eventually this tent turns up. And it's this little fucking camping tent. And also, the weather up until that point had been absolutely fine. And if we'd been able to start on time, it would have been absolutely fine. But yeah, the tent finally arrives and it's just left there for us to put up. No instructions at all and none of us have got a fucking clue how to put this tent up even. And we finally managed to put it up between us. And it's so small, even Liam, at whatever height he is, is struggling to stand up in there. <laughs> and there's however many of us in there. And it's like being back at the fucking bonus ball hall. <laughs> Eventually, somehow, we sort of all manage, you know, on rotation to get changed. And the show starts, you know, we start the show and, you know, we have the first couple of matches. Me and Andy go out for our match. And it just starts absolutely fucking throwing it down to the point where I'm sure you remember this to the point where there's puddles collecting in the ring. And like I'm slamming Andy in these puddles and we're doing this lovely sort of little technical spot where he's, you know, head standing out of a head scissors back into a headlock. And he's just landing in a puddle on the way through. <laughs> it was just fucking mental. It was just absolutely pissing it down from start to finish. 
And all the people that have been watching up until then from around the ring, they're all now in the bandstand. So on the video, it looks like there's no fucker there and we're just you know, playing to nobody. Oh. I remember so clearly as well, every count. <laughs> you know, I've been battering the ring canvas one, two, <laughs> kick out. But that one and two, there's puddles I'm in my hand into and stuff. <laughs> And I'm slipping about because I'm wearing either like trainers or real shoes, and I'm just slipping about as if I was on an ice rink, really. <laughs> but the worst bit was, notwithstanding all that good stuff, I just remember being thoroughly miserable that I was getting soaked. <laughs> you know the way that if you go out to grab something out of the local shop, thinking, oh, it's 10 minutes there, 10 minutes back, the weather's okay, and then when you leave the shop, oh, the heavens have opened. It was one of those rains, wasn't it? It was proper torrential <laughs> rain. Yeah, it was really like that. I remember after the rain had sort of subsided a bit, I remember us all getting a picture done for the local paper. Because we'd had this stupid elimination match at the end, you know, with everybody, similar to a camp-style show. We had the three singles matches or whatever it was, and then everybody from them sort of did a six-man at the end. And... We've come up with this thing beforehand where we've all been allocated a specific wrestler that we had to pretend to be during the match. And I forget, you know, who was who now, but we're all there doing our gimmicks. And then just as the match is about to start, this photographer gets up on the ring apron. Oh, yeah, picture for the local paper. So we all come together. Thumbs up, you know, like lovely picture for the local paper sort of thing. And then we start having this match. (laughs) Oh, but I mean... Just to sum up the weekend, you know, um, after we're putting the ring away, you know, get it away and go wherever we go, you know, there's a marching band, because the gala day's still going on. Not that there's any fucker watching it, but there's a marching band going round, and we look over, we're just about ready to leave. We're going, right, we got everybody. And, wait a minute, Andy's missing? And, of course, you know, we look over at this marching band to see Andy at the back of them, just stepping along with them, like pretending to play an instrument. <laughs> pretending like he's playing a trumpet or something. I and remember then... doing a show at the Kelvin Hall and Dave was there and an orange walk was going by and we can see it from a distance and Dave said to me, oh, is this like some kind of a family fun day? <laughs> I said, not really, Dave. I don't know if you see many smiles, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Liam then just summed it up by saying, it's been an eventful weekend. (laughs) That's the understatement of the century. You're not fucking kidding, it has. (laughs) But that whole weekend is just one of the things that sticks out in my memory is just being one of the most ridiculous experiences from start to finish, you know. Yeah. There were just so many weekends like that. Pretty much always something stupid would happen. It was as if as soon as you met up with the first person you were meeting until the end, there was always something happening. So I could probably sit and write down dozens of pages worth of things if I put my (laughs) mind to it. And if you think about that weekend in particular, not all of us, but some of us either worked or we went to uni or college. And you go in on a Monday morning and someone say, oh, did you get up too much? <laughs> and you well, say, oh, not really, yourself. <laughs> there was a show in Forfa. This would have been, I want to say 2007. 
And the main event is Andy versus Grogan. <laughs> I know what you're going to say here. I've just remembered this. <laughs> <laughs> and it was one of them things where Alan loved to wind Andy up. And he came up with this thing. I don't know quite how the seeds of it sort of germinated, but Alan was going off to, I think it was when he was going off to Korea for that year he was out there. And Alan was the Scottish lightweight champion at the time. And he was going to need, you know, to drop the belt to somebody. There was always a little bit of tension between him and Andy. He came up with this thing where he was going to drop the title to Andy but he was going to make out that he'd fallen out with him, that he'd said something, and he, and there's no way I'm going to drop the title to you now. And this played out over a period of, I want to say at least a week, because I remember going back and forth with the two of them through the week, and Alan is playing it up big time, saying, you know, he's fallen out with Andy, he takes him off MSN, you know, he won't answer his phone calls and all of this, and he's saying that whatever it is Andy's done that's pissed him off, there's no way, you know, that he's going to drop the title to him now in Forfa. And he probably won't even work with him in the ring. You know, all of that sort of stuff. <laughs> and he phoned me, like, and we're discussing it. And he got me to play along with this as well. I think various other people were involved too. <laughs> yep. And I'm going back and forth with him. I'm going back and forth with Andy, who's phoning me, saying, no, what's the guy's problem? And what are we going to do on this show that's coming up? And it carries on all throughout the week. And Andy's not sure whether he's even going to have the match. We get there on the day. Alan's still on the outs with him on the show day as well. You know, he won't talk to him. And Andy's coming to me going, like, what are we going to do about this? Now, going to Andy, right, let's just get through this match. Let him go over. Like, we'll just get through this match. Then I'm going to stop using him. We'll figure some other way of doing this in the future kind of thing. So Andy's convinced that Alan's gone over in this match and they get together for a brief conversation about how the finish is going to go. You know, it's like Alan's insistent that he's going over and that's all there is to it, you know, and like, I'm not putting you over and blah, 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 whatever it is they do on the day. And then it gets to the point in the match where Alan goes up to the top rope for the dive across the cross body off the top rope and they roll through with it. So he hits the crossbody, they roll through with it, and Andy ends up on top of him. And as you're going to count the pin, Alan holds Andy on top of him so that it's actually Alan that gets pinned. And even then after the match, he's going like, oh, for fuck's sake, I can't believe you've just done that. I can't believe you've fucking done that to me, you know, and all of this. And storms out the ring. And then he comes back in the ring, gives the title belt to Andy, like Hulk Hogan giving the title belt to the Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania six presents him with the title belt and he raises his hand and goes ribs over and, that... <laughs> and Andy's face you can see it on the video you know Andy's face as he does this it's like you bastard and it's like open mouthed at this like and Alan's laughing <laughs> how much did you actually know about all this yeah so I definitely knew about it the only thing I don't know about is how far in advance. My gut instinct is telling me that I knew about it for at least days. Right. Bear in mind, this is in the era of MSN, where we're all talking in group chats and individually. Anytime we all logged on, there'd all be someone around, wouldn't there? Uh-huh. But we're also very friendly and we've all got each other's numbers and texting and phoning each other. 
and Grogan definitely told me what he was going to do. You know, once he rolled through with the crossbody, he was going to hold on to Andy, so I'd get the three in, and he's saying, just don't make it a soak, and just make sure it's a one, two, three, boom. And as soon as you mentioned the players involved, I pictured Andy's face when I counted to three. And I've not seen that since. I've never, ever seen the video footage. So I don't know if the video footage has his face as soon as the free count happens. But it was honestly like, you know, the kid at Christmas Day that sees the horse present, you know, <laughs> it was total shock. But you know what? See if you remember Grogan back then, like, you know, he was always <laughs> up to something. Because like, I remember one night we were all out in the town and it wasn't a wrestling night. Maybe there were shows over the weekend, but this night it was just a Friday night and we're all out in the piss. And I'm sure we were in somewhere like Yatesies in Socky Hall Street. And Grogan's proposed that we all play like a drinking game. And the idea of this drinking game is that if you're the last one to have your thumb on the table, you've got to down a shot or down a pint. Something very random like that. Right. But in the background, he's given all of us the office that, you know, as soon as he taps his knee into me, so I'm one side of him, and I think Drew's beside me, the other side. I have to put my thumb on the table as soon as he taps my knee. And equally, he's going to tap his other knee to the person on the other side of him. They're going to put their thumb down, and they're going to give the other person. So everyone's in in this, apart from Drew. <laughs> and <laughs> Drew just can't work out how he's always the last person to get his thumb on the table. <laughs> this went on for about six shots or six pints or something, you know. <laughs> where Drew's like, oh my god, how have you all got your thumb on the table? And it's like, oh, just the way it's gone, Drew, no luck. <laughs> and I suppose that's just good communication from Grogan, isn't it? Always been able to do that. But I don't remember, uh, maybe at least apart from once, I'm doing anything particularly bad to anyone. <laughs> and no one died the time he got a wee bit too overwhelmed with it all. But yeah, he was really good company, wasn't he, Alan? And he always reminded me of like Roddy Barker from Porridge or something. Not how he looked, but just, you know, that sort of a... He'd lived a little bit more than like many of the other people around at that time. Uh-huh. I don't want to say he was wide, but he certainly wasn't slow. So like he was always good value in that regard for a wind-up or just general banter, wasn't he? Yeah. I've told one of them stories before about me and Pendus pranking Drew that one time putting chilli paste on his lips while he was asleep and stuff, and then him throttling Duff, you know, blaming <laughs> Duff for it when he woke up. <laughs> he actually used to do some quite harsh ones. Actually, to be honest, if it was anybody else, it would have been harsh, but there were loads of them Geordies up. May have been the same time that they all shagged <laughs> Yeah, I think everyone had a shot. <laughs> yeah, well, they did that <laughs> night. Well, that's heard. I wasn't there, but I'd heard stuff like that, and... <laughs> I didn't want to be there. <laughs> All these Geordies were up, and it was like, you know, fucking refugee centre, but, you know, much more challenging. And the one guy, I forget who it was, but they'd got a really badly cut up chest. I think, like, someone had chopped them, and, like, you know, it was really badly open. Mm-hmm. And Stu went away to get this stuff, and, like, he said, oh, you know, like, stick this on it. It's like a healing oil. It's like Savlon sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, it was WD-40. <laughs> it was a spray you know it's like um yeah and he just sprayed this guy's open wounds with like wd-40 <laughs> oh god you make a point because i forgot about that see when i even think back to the very first time i went to the bcw training 
it's just like joining a new workplace. You kind of quickly get a feel for, you know, who's your alpha males, who's your comedy uh-huh. guy, who's all this. And yeah. I do remember thinking Appendix is like trying to make sure that his position is known, you know, like he's a sort of a jock. Do you know what I mean? Like he's one of the guys. You must have been there at that show in Dundee where he fucking threw Grogan's shoes up onto the ceiling. <laughs> I remember hearing about that, but did that happen during the show? Because I wasn't around no. when it happened. No, it was before the show. We're getting closer to the time that doors are going to be opening and nobody can get these shoes down. Like, <laughs> So in the end, Pendus has to go climbing up like Spider-Man. And like... <laughs> I remember this now, yeah. <laughs> and Grogan's in a right mood because like, these are like proper dress shoes or whatever. And it's they're just stuck up on the top of this pipe. It was like his Ric Flair leather loafers or something. Yeah, it was these brown leather shoes. <laughs> yeah, I remember it now. God, how do you forget things like that? But yeah. <laughs> so that was part three of my interview with Tony Nadette. Next time, in the fourth and final instalment of Tony's interview, we'll talk about him working for other promotions in Scotland and England. His time in Italy working for New Wrestling Evolution, and all the characters involved in that promotion. Tony also looks back at some of his best and worst nights as a referee, as well as lots, lots more. All that and more to come in episode 21. Before that though, as we approach the end of another show, it's now time for our final feature. Song of the Week Yes, it's Song of the Week. Since I was unable to find any songs that made references to Bobby Duval, wrestling rings being held up with spades, throwing chocolate bars out of spa shops, or wild promotions, it will happen one day. One day, we'll do a wild promotions redub of the classic Young, Strong and Healthy although with the state many of us are in these days, it's more likely to be old, bald and crippled. Incidentally, if you've never seen the two music videos put out in the early 90s by the CWA in Germany, We Are Dynamite and the aforementioned Young, Strong and Healthy, do yourself a favour, get on YouTube and look them up. You won't regret it. Anyway, as I wasn't able to find songs referencing any of those things, I thought it only right that Song of the Week this time should give a nod to the drinking culture we talked about earlier, which was such a big part of being involved in wrestling for us at that time. So, without any further ado, this week's Song of the Week is Show Me the Way to Go Home by Ray Anthony. And here it is.
well, that's just about it again for this time. Thank you all very, very much for listening. And thank you again to my fantastic guest, Tony Nadette. And you can hear the fourth and final part of Tony's tremendous interview next time. So do keep a lookout on our social media pages for details of when episode 21 will be available. Until that time, if you enjoy this show, please do continue to like, share, retweet our posts and recommend us to others. Please do also get in touch and let us know what you think. We do love to hear your feedback. So until next time, this is Carl Stewart, signing off and saying goodbye, thank you, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And we'll be back with more great shows in 2022.